three, two, one. Boom. I don't want to start off like this is a commercial, dude, but this fucking thing you have, this Tim Tam thing, this is incredible. It's sick, huh? I've never, I've seen some of these different ones online, people using them, Thera things, you know, I don't know what they call them, uh, Theragun, I think, but this fucking thing is amazing. This is the most powerful one, it has the, the highest travel, and it's the, the best price. So, I mean, it's... Out of all the different ones of these things online? Yeah, this is the best one. So, I mean, what this is, folks, we took the battery out, I'll pop the battery back you in real pop quick. It in? I'll pop it in real quick. Go for it. Just so people can see. <laughs> That's how impressed I am by this thing. So I've had this nagging muscle in my hip, and then, like, instantaneously, this fucking thing, you, you hold it, folks, and you get it, like, right on a spot. For me, it's, like, right here. I go, and it just loosens that motherfucker up. Like, this is so much more powerful than any of those massagers that you get, like, from a store. Exactly. No, no, there's no massager more powerful than this one on the market. Like this is not for mom and dad, you know, this is for the guy doing, uh, you know, playing soccer, football, MMA, CrossFit, like that's for the hardcore athletes. And you invented this? I, I started the company. I started the company. I bought one of those DMS. I don't know if you ever heard of those. It's called Deep Muscle Stimulator. It's kind we of talking about that before, and I yeah. said, save this, save this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what is that? It's uh, the deep muscle stimulator. It's like a stainless steel, high-powered massager that you have to plug in. It cost me three grand. I bought it. It had a really bad sciatica for two years. Like I almost stopped training. Like I almost had to take a like. A, I've got a problem with that right now. Really sciatica? Yeah, okay, yeah. this is gonna help you out big yeah, time. It comes and goes. Big time. Because yeah. I had. I mean, I was. I was so bad. I couldn't sleep. Like I could not sleep because I was. Does in so yours much pain. go all the way? I get mine in my calf sometimes. Really? No, yeah, I'm lucky. It goes all the way down to the calf for no, some weird reason. Me, it went down to the hamstring, and mm. it stopped there. Like I, I, I was able to stop the problem there. But they say you can go all the way down to the calf. That's that's getting bad. Yeah. You know? Ooh, I'm gonna get my calf right now. <laughs> Motherfucker. So I bought that DMS. There it is. You know, that, that's Jeez. the DMS. Great, oh my god. Great machine. Great machine, but it overheats. It costs three grand. And what does that that piston do? Does it hammer you? Or yeah, it, it, yeah, it hammers you. It has just a, like this. Yeah, but it has a lesser travel. This one has a greater travel. So that one, the DMS is a little bit too vibration. It's not as much uh, travel. It's not as much percussion. Percussion is what you're looking for. And uh, so when uh, I got together with a company from the U.S., Disrupt, we put together the, the TimTam.tech company. We oh. went uh, to China. We checked out 100 <laughs> different type of guns. We got this one going. This was the best one. And, uh, Dude, this fucking thing's incredible. It's incredible. And I hate to sound like this is <laughs> like you paid me to do an endorsement. He didn't, folks. This is this fucking thing. You should sell. These should be flying off the charts. They <laughs> shouldn't you. even need drones. They should just be flying themselves. Seriously. Damn. You know what? The thing was the deep muscle stimulators. We have to share it in the gym. This is you buy your own personal gun. You mm -hmm. know, and because the deep muscle stimulator is three thousand bucks. You know, to lend it out or how much is one of these? It's 400 bucks, five-year warranty. That's a fucking bargain. It's for, a bargain. For anybody who it's trains a, really hard, yeah. that's a bargain. It's a massage for life. It's your health. You know? Ooh, that's nice, man. It's like a Sawzall. This exactly. Is like, it's like exactly. you took a Sawzall and you put like a, a little rubber yeah. ball on the end of it. It's, it's like uh, we tried so many other type of machines, but they're all overheat, weak. You know, mm -hmm. They're not efficient. The most efficient has already been created. So we just retooled it. We just rechanged it. We made it so that it's... Uh, you can use it on the human body. There's some modifications made, but that's it. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's it's the most efficient type of design they have. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's really hard to find someone who can massage you correctly. It's very hard to find someone who's good. Exactly. Someone who could really break up the tissue. 
But even if you do, like th- what this thing can do, this thing is like vibrating you and shaking yeah. everything loose. And I have a I have a cone tip I gotta send you. It even goes even deeper. Uh. So if you can handle deep tissue, Ooh. I'm gonna send you a bunch of them. Okay. Yeah, you're gonna love it. We have also cold tip, hot tip. It's uh, it's oh, pretty. Oh, so you freeze them? Uh, you can freeze them because that helps kill the pain. So if you have an acute acute injury, like or and after like a, a week or two, and you want to start working on it, the the cold of the tip helps numb the pain, it helps manage pain a little more. And the hot tip helps loosen up the muscle a little further. I mostly use the cone tip. The cone tip's for those who have, you know, your experience with massage. You're, you're, you're able to go deep tissue. And uh, for some people it hurts, for me it's, it's, it's perfect. So you find like where the scar tissue is, exactly. you can break it up. Exactly, you know. the surface area on the cone tip is obviously smaller, so it goes even in d- deeper and and uh, and unlocks that muscle real quick. So for me, I don't have the time for foam rolling. You know, that's the the main reason why I I wanted a product like this because foam rolling takes forever to break to really loosen up a muscle. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the gym all day. Do I want to stay you know in the gym another hour rolling up and down on a on a foam roller? I think you got to do something though, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. You kind of have to do something if you're training hard and you want to train for life. Do you use those, uh, well, we don't have one in the room, but you ever use those, um, what are they called? Supernova? Yep. Supernova yeah, like a lacrosse ball. Yep. Balls. Yep. 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 Yeah. yeah, but it's larger. Yeah. It's like, yeah, a, yeah. it's like a big blue one. I love that thing. It's Rogue yeah. makes it. That fucker gets in there. But this is even better than that. This yeah. is this thing is incredible, man. I, I like the ball for uh, my back when I do my back. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can lie down on it. I can get the pressure I want. But right. when, I use, when I do my legs, I use the Tim Tam. Yeah, when I go on the road, I bring that ball with me, and I'll put it on the ground in a hotel room, and I bridge on it, and mm. I just like hit like certain spots, and it's amazing. Pop everything loose. Yeah. yeah, you need a lot of body weight. Sometimes I put a, a kettlebell on my chest, ah. and you get even deeper, mm. and uh, you can really unlock a muscle like this. I mean, yeah. you could really get in there and really unlock it. For people who train, they know, you know, when you, when you get that nagging tight muscle in your neck and your shoulder, your shoulder blades, yeah, and then you're on the mat, you do a quick movement. You know? Yes. That's it's scary. Dude, so. I did it once in the shower. I had something going on in my neck, I guess, and I didn't mm. realize how bad it was. And I turned in the shower to get something, and it popped. Exactly. Ah, and then for like exactly. days, I was locked up. I've had that done also, but it's it's all about keeping the muscles loose. Yeah. Good posture. You know, Kelly Starrett wrote a book. You had him on, on this show. Yeah, he's, he's a really great. amazing guy. He's great. He really changed my life, honestly. I'm, t- I'm telling you, reading his book, Supple Leopard, mm-hmm. I know all my, all, all, everybody who knows me, follows me, they know I always talk about this book. You know, he said something so important. He said, look, it comes down to two things, good alignment and loose muscles. You got to keep your body aligned and loose muscles. And uh, I just followed those two principles. I mean, his book is really, really excellent. And um, when I saw his, when I read his book, that's when I, I reached out to him to work with George. Because he, I don't know if you've ever seen when George does a backflip mm-hmm. and he lands, his knees always kind of come in together. If you ever mm-hmm. see like, yeah. watch him do a backflip. That's called, a, I was reading his book and I saw, that's the Volgus fault. He calls that the Volgus fault. When you when you do a squat and your knees come close to one another and he's like, that uh, can cause ACL tears. And I'm like, I know a guy with two ACL tears and he does that all the time. I see him do that all the time. It's something I've always noticed about George. His knees yeah. always bow in when we do lifts, when we do jumps, when we do hurdles. I mean, I've watched J- George jump up and down a, a, a literally thousands of times. And I saw his knees bow in all the time. And he's like, well, then I reached out to him. I said, hey, could you help me correct George's? There it is. That's the Volga's mm. fault. And he's like, sure. And, and ever since then, George's knees have been uh, a lot better. And we still what use. What did you do to fix it? Well, what he does, it's a technical skill. 
It's a skill. So he does. He has a few different exercises to help you correct it. So you put a band around your knees and you kind of push out on the band. But really what we do is we'll make George do a lift or a jump, film it, send it to Kelly, and he'll tell us how aligned we are and what directions to go. So he kind of coaches us on how to avoid um, um, this uh, fault. However, really, at the end of the day, it's about keeping your knees turned to the outside. Mm. I used to walk up the stairs and have knees in my pain in my knee. You ever have that when you walk upstairs? No. I, I used to have pain in my knee walking up the stairs. And just I was, from stairs? Just from walking upstairs. And I didn't know why. And then I read his book and he's like, look, when you walk up a step, you got to keep your toes straight and turn your knee out. I was like, really? And I started doing that. My pain was gone immediately. Keep your toes straight. Straight. Like toes turn forward your knee out. and turn your knee out. Turn your knee to the outside. So he says, look, this is your, this is your ACL. See this here? Mm-hmm. This is your ACL. Cross your, your ACL. Right. Okay, that's the ACL. You put it in your kneecap. Right. That's, that's your knee. When you turn your knee to the outside, look, it tightens it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That takes away all the slack. So what happens oh. when you're going up the, the when you're going up the stairs, your 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 ACL is just jiggling around and getting sheared. Ooh. But when you tighten it up, you go up. You're secured. So he, call, he calls it creating torque. He's a brilliant book, man. He's a brilliant guy. So Incredible. even when you run hills, you should do that. Absolutely, you should always be aligned. Whenever your body's under pressure or stress, whether you're wrestling or whatnot, you should always have torque. So like, look, grab your shirt like this, okay? Grab your shirt, okay? okay? He, he gives an example in the book, excellent example. So now grab the, the shirt and twist it here, create torque. Now look, you have a much more uh, a stable grip. You know, sure. a, a judoka is always gonna grab the lapels and twist them. Right. So when you grab the bar, let's say you're gonna do a bench press. Maybe, you know, it's not the best exercise or not, but the principle is still at work. When you grab the bar, you should be torquing the bar. Almost. Yeah, when you're doing it. push-ups, your hands are on the mat and you're torquing. Mm, Even though right. your hands are not turning, literally, you're just torquing. Right. When you do that, you feel that all the slack is eaten up. There's mm. no more slack. There's no more uh, uh, trampoline effect. You know, there's no more jiggling. Everything's mm-hmm. tight. The system is tight. And it's very, very important that the system be tight and that the weight be on the muscles. Mm. So if you're properly aligned when you're doing a maneuver, the weight is on the bone, not on the tendons. So if you put your, put your weight like this on your fingers, you'll see that the bone is carrying Right. If you bend, if you bend your bones here, look, look. If you're unaligned and you start putting pressure, now you see your muscles are starting right. to work over time. Right. So, when I'm carrying weight, I need to, I need to have it on my bones and or my muscles, never on the tendons and ligaments. You the know, ligaments they say that with backpackers. You know what backpackers do? No. They, they, they keep their legs as stiff as possible, and they take short like sort of short steps, like mm-hmm. guys who are mountaineer guys, they don't take like big high right. steps. They kind of keep their legs stiff and they walk with their skeleton. Right. They if try I, to let their skeleton You see me, carry. I'm sitting on this chair. This chair has no muscles, but it's holding me up right. because of the structure. Yeah. Structure is a type of, of uh, strength. So if you take an egg and you try to squeeze it in a certain way, you can't break it. You know, you ever seen that experiment? Mm-hmm. Why? Because you're actually trying to crush a cylinder. To crush a cylinder takes a tremendous amount of force. However, to break a stick in half takes a very little amount of force. Why? It has a lot to do with the, with the structure. If you're trying to compress matter on itself, it won't. It won't. It would take a tremendous amount of force to do that. Tremendous, tremendous amount of power. However, if you want to separate the, the material uh, by bending it at the middle, it's, it's very easy. But to compress it, to compress material on itself, it takes take a tremendous amount of energy. Right. So anytime you're going outside of your alignment, you're exactly. allowing things to compress. Yeah. That's why it makes so much sense to keep your legs straight when you're hiking. It's like mm. a horse that sleeps, right? He's sleeping. If he aligns his legs perfectly straight, he's using structure to hold him up instead of muscular mm. strength. So, I mean, and he, I remember he, you had him on this show and you guys had a very interesting uh, uh, conversation. And, you, and he was talking about 
front squatting will make you have a great guard. But I think you guys mis misunderstood each other, actually. Because you were like, no, front squatting has nothing to do with the, have a great guard. And I, and I agree with both of you. But I think you guys were not talking about the exact same thing. He's talking about having the mobility to squat down really low mm -hmm. in the front squat will help your guard. Not necessarily having a big lift. Not necessarily, he wasn't talking about have, lifting 300 pounds in a front squat. It's going to make you a great mm -hmm. guard player. That, that's irrelevant. He, what, I think what he was talking about is having incredible mobility in your hips. You ever see a, a child pick up something off the floor, like a, a newborn baby? Mm -hmm. He's going to get into this perfect, perfect squat. Well, if you, if you look at guard players, the best guard players always have incredible flexibility in their hips. Right. Because I always tell people that the higher you can bring your hips to your chest, the harder it is for me to pass your guard. Like if you're one of those guys where, you're, where your knee's like this, you know, you're trying to regard and your knee's this far. It's the, the space for me to pass your guard is huge. Giant, yeah. But if you can bring this foot behind your head and mm -hmm. your hips, it's the window, the space that I need to cross to get to side control is so small. Yeah, um, Eddie has, uh, excuse me, one of his students is named Sean Bollinger and he has crazy right. I've, I've seen flexibility. I've seen him, I've seen crazy. him. Crazy. The could, double. Uh, yeah, he could do double lotus like, yeah. <laughs> and, and he could literally take his legs and put them behind his head. Yeah. I mean, he could just pu pull his legs back. How many How many great guard players have you seen who can do that? So many of, of them. Yeah, yeah. Like, like Ryan Hall, for instance. Keenan. Uh, yeah, Keenan. I mean, they, they have this flexibility mm -hmm. to them. Passing the guards becomes very, it's very. It's difficult. almost impossible. It's almost impossible. It's like they just spin a little bit, and you're back in something again, and you're you're tied yeah. up, and then you add in leg locks, and you're kind of fucked. Exactly. Because they're they're spinning to your leg while you're trying it's, to pass their guard, and yeah. It, the hip flexibility is so paramount in jujitsu mm -hmm. for yeah. bottom game, especially. And it's, it's so it's devastating huge. when you have a hip injury. Uh, hip injuries, and you know, yeah. I know guys who have had hip replacements, and it's like, boy. You yeah. know, then you're you're so severely limited in what you can do afterwards. You, you got to never let it get there, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. According to Kelly, he says your joints can last you 120 years, like if you take care of them. And he says there's two percent catastrophe, meaning you, you got hit by a bus. Okay, that's something we can't we can't do anything about. 98 percent of the time is because you didn't take care of your joints. You haven't you haven't properly uh, used them, and you let muscles get tight for too long mm -hmm. over a long period of time. So for me personally, I feel like when I was 20, I feel better now. Then when I was 25, because at 25, I was really beat up. 26, 27, I was really like, hey, my knees, my back, my neck, you know, training every day, twice a day. It was grueling. But after I went through that system, I came back out fresh. And now whenever I have a little tweak or anything like that, I take care of it immediately. I mm. kill it. I don't let any tweak creep up, go, go any yeah, further. Right. And uh, I feel much more energy. Like when I, when I keep that, the body healthy and loose, I feel a lot more energy. I feel better. My, my mood is better. That's a, it's the balance between being tough and and you know being mentally strong enough to like push through training when you're you know you're not feeling your best and knowing that you're fucking up your vehicle exactly. knowing, knowing that you're fucking up your body very true yeah, very true there's a balance hard for fighters in particular because they want to be tough mm. you know so you got some weird little thing in your leg like whatever i'm just gonna work through it mm. and you just work and you say i'm just gonna go light that, which is yeah. hilarious. People who say they're going to go light, you go light, and then you get tagged, <laughs> and then you want to get someone back, and the next thing you know, you're not going light. Yeah. And then that thing in your leg is all fucked up, and then next thing you know, you go to a doctor, and, oh, you have an MCL tear. Oh, Yeesh. fuck. Yep. And then with, with that tightness, that's it gets worse after, after 48 hours. You have DOMS, mm -hmm. delayed onset muscle soreness. And then you're in the shower, you turn your neck, boom, something pops. Yeah, yeah. You know? What do you do in terms of, do you take curcumin or curcumin? That's how you say it, right? Curcumin, turmeric, <clears throat> anti-inflammatory, you know, herbs and things along those lines. Um, I know that um, there was, Rhonda Patrick just put something up about, uh, I think you say, I think you call it curcumin. Curcumin or cur curcumin? 
anyway. It's turmeric. It's the active ingredient in turmeric. And she just put something up on her uh, Twitter page a couple of days ago about how important this stuff is. <clears throat> and to make sure that you have uh, bioavailable. It improves memory and mood as well. Well, I have to try it. I haven't tried it. Yeah, it's just turmeric. It's, really? uh, and yeah, and that stuff is fantastic for inflammation. People that have soreness and, you know, like nagging injuries and nagging inflammation, having that as a part of your daily diet is fantastic, along with fish oil. <clears throat> fish oil is really good for that. You know, of course, and then watching your diet and making sure you're low in inflammatory foods like sugar and alcohol right. and, you know, That's things like Really, it's amazing how much of a difference it makes. It's if, huge. If you have any sort of uh, back injury or inflammation. I talked to this lady who was a therapist a few years back, and she was saying, you know, you should really try going gluten-free if you have issues with your uh, with your back. I was like, listen to this wacky bitch. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. All I was thinking is like, oh, she's talking woo-woo with crystals nonsense. And I was like, wait a minute, really? Gluten? She's like, you'd be amazed at how many people um, when – and now that – I've thought about it more, and with all I know, talking to various nutritionists and, and actual clinical researchers, I think it's as much gluten as it is just just sugar, refined carbohydrates, and refined carbohydrates and sugars and all these different things just create inflammation. There's just no way around it, mm. especially the the levels that normal Americans eat them in. Oh boy, yeah. now you're talking about we're the worst. Yeah, it's it's a tremendous amount of sugar. Yeah, it's like just, you you don't know it until you get off sugar. Mm-hmm. And then you go see everybody who's eating the standard amount of sugar, and you're like, it blows your mind. Yeah. You don't need that much sugar. There's like, no way. Just, yeah. It's just way too much. And you feel sick eating that much sugar again. Like, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Like a jug of Gatorade that a lot oh of dudes drink after practice. I like, couldn't get that down. That's, I mean, have you ever seen those, they, they have those things where they show you uh, in um, on uh, online, they have like, this is the amount of sugar that's in a can of Coke. This is the amount of sugar that's in a 24-ounce bottle of Gatorade. It's, it's fucking it's incredible. crazy. It's, it's incredible amount. It's a pile of sugar. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's like a fistful of sugar. But it's addictive. Yeah, oh. It gets yeah. the customer coming back. Yeah. It gets the customer coming back. You need that next sugar high. You need more sugar the next time mm -hmm. around. You need another dose of sugar. Yeah. And I think I think your sugar, you should get it from Whole Foods mostly. You know, it gets released into your system naturally, slowly. Yeah, there you know? it is right there. Look at that wow. big gulp. Wow. <laughs> that big gulp is like a, it's like a kilo. Wow. <laughs> it looks like, like you're bringing Coke across the border. That's just poisonous, really. That's fucking amazing. It's, that's so much sugar. Wow. That's impressive. What does it say? 17 grams? What does it say, Jamie? 37? 17 tablespoons. 17 tablespoons? 32 tablespoons, tablespoons for that. This is 18. Tablespoons. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's wow. So much. That's so much sugar. That's wow. so much sugar. Chocolate wow. milk has seven. Some people Chocolate milk. Wow. Chocolate milk is supposed to be good after you train, though. It's white milk, too. Or maybe that's, that's old news. Uh, I don't know. George used to do that. Yeah, George used to do that. But I'll tell you something. George is a freak of nature when it comes to diet. Yeah. yeah well, he, he's very blessed. Okay, I think uh, I think this, look. This is just my observation, but I think some people, um, uh, when they eat carbs, they spike their insulin. Okay, and they they can get fat off if they eat too much carbs. And some people eat a tremendous amount of carbs and they never get fat. And we've all ha we all have a friend who eats a lot of junk food and is ripped. They're not a, they're not many in the in the right. world. Okay, but they exist. Yeah, we've all we've all met a person like that. Yeah. George is one of those guys. Like, if he eats McDonald's for a week or he eats vegetables for a week, it doesn't matter. He's gonna be lean either way. Now he'll be leaner on vegetables, but even on McDonald's, he's gonna be lean. He's never been fat in his entire career, his entire life, I should say. 
So I Did mean, he get a little heavier when he stopped training. He look, because he took some photos for the UFC. He looked a little heavier, bulky. I would say. Yeah. But do you, do you, would you say that he's chubby? Or no, fat? no, no. If no. I saw him at the beach, I wouldn't He'd say be look like at that this guy's guy. shredded. I'd this guy's like, that guy's jacked. This guy's jacked. But when it's George, you hold him to the highest of standards. <laughs> you know, it's if I ate the way he eats, I would be fat. Wow. Let's put it that way. How many people told me, "Hey, I've been hanging out with George for a week. I got fat. I gained ten pounds." I'm like, "Yeah, that's George, man." <laughs> That's George. Don't don't eat like he eats. You won't. It won't work. And he has his whole theories and philosophies about why he's lean. It's like, dude, no, you're just you're just born this way. You, he doesn't get it. I've tra- well, like, I've trained thousands of people. Okay, he's trained himself. Like he thinks that <laughs> way, what he did to, what he did is gonna work for everyone. I, and I, I love George. He's a super intelligent guy. But I tell him, George, the way like he's very gifted when it comes to food, and he does a lot of things. Like now he's doing a lot of fasting, and he's getting even leaner. Yeah. But it'll be a long time before George is fat. You see, there's 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 various body types. You know, you do you have ectomorph, mesomorph, endomorph, and we're we're uh, we're on the continuum of these three. George is on the ectomorph side, and and a, and a strong sign of ectomorph is a small waist. And George has a uh, very, isn't that mesomorph? No, mesomorph because, is because he's very muscular. He is. I would say he's between ectomorph struggles. and muscles. But, but here, sorry, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. George was very skinny and scrawny when he was young, so mm-hmm. he went crazy on the weights. He turned his weakness into a strength. He did so much weight weight training and, and, and exercise because he wanted to bulk up. So he's a bulk ectomorph. Now, he's not a perfect ectomorph. He's not a, f- a 100% ectomorph. I would say he's between ectomorph and mesomorph. Hmm. But endomorph, the, the other end of the spectrum, you eat a little bit of uh, carbohydrates, you get fat. You lift a little bit of muscles, your muscles explode in, mm-hmm. in, in size. George wasn't like that. George is a bit on the other side of the spectrum. So a real mesomorph would be like Melvin Manhoof. Uh, yeah, like that, you know, Just like, jacked. I, I'm, I think I'm kind of, no, 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 that's more, uh, uh, endomorph. No, the, endomorph is fat. Yeah, but you could also be very muscular. Endomorph? Yeah, you could be very muscular. I thought endomorph is like, like people that have a really hard time not being overweight. You can gain fat and, and muscle really quickly. As an endomorph? Yeah, but ectomorphs, from what I've read, I might be wrong. Hmm. Um, Neither they, one of us are biologists. <laughs> exactly. It's a problem with exactly, this conversation. Exactly. I always thought ectomorph was really skinny, endomorph was, they tend to lean towards being overweight, and then mesomorph was someone who's like really like a Francis Ngannou. No, like I, super I, mu- or Brock Lesnar, like super muscular, thick, like just look like they like naturally would pack a lot of muscle I'm sure. On. I'm sure you could pull up a chart. If you if you can, all these pictures just show both of them. From what I from what I've read, see the mesomorph is kind of in the middle. Ectomorph is lean and hard pack on muscle. Ectomorph looks like a skinny dork, and mesomorph looks like he's super jacked, and endomorph looks like. (laughs) Well, endomorph. See, but endomorph does not look fat in that picture. He doesn't have to be fat. That's the thing. See, now here, here's. Let me tell you something, ladies. Go for it. When you look at those three pictures, uh-huh. I go with endomorph all day. Uh-huh, exactly. And those three pictures. We love the endomorphs. If that's what an endomorph is. Mm-hmm. Let's take the endomorph. Yeah, because them <laughs> ectomorphs, they, they need a lot of naps and they're always tired. And those mesomorphs. <laughs> and they their wanna, egos, my yeah, goodness. They want to choke you. The mesomorphs <laughs> always want to fucking strangle you. But uh, endomorphs, that's a woman. God damn You can it. have a ripped endomorph. <laughs> Anybody could be ripped. Mm. That's the guy's and, an endomorph? Chris Pratt, maybe. Think about an endomorph as like a short, stocky Hulk. A he short, could be fat, right? And he could also be packed with muscle. Like it Kelvin, depends. Kelvin Gastelum. Kevin Gastelum. He, yeah. I would put him on the endomorph, yeah. endomorph side. Yes, yeah. definitely. Because he's never really totally ripped. Well, Dolce, when he had him and he was getting him down to a, a real one seventy, he he really had him pretty ripped at one point mm. in time. Just really low. That's body the thing. Fat. You can get ripped. It's yeah. just not as easy to get there. Mm-hmm. Anybody can get ripped, um, but a, an ectomorph. So think about a basketball player, okay? One right. of the signs they say is 
Small waist. The waist and shoulders are quite uh, similar. Now, George has a V going. You know, mm-hmm. He has very broad shoulders, which is great. He's perfectly built for fighting. That allows him for reach. And his double leg, because he's got incredible leg. It's like he's wearing shoulder pads almost. Mm. And you know, he's blessed with many, many uh, uh, genetic gifts for fighting. No doubt about it. And endomorphs are naturally, predis- excuse me, ectomorphs are naturally predisposed to endurance sports. So you'll see a lot of marathon runners or whatnot, they're tall and lanky. They're not short, mm, bulky, right. uh, you know, uh, Mike Tyson type look uh, athletes. That's You're, a real mesomorph, that's right? A real, that's a real, I would say endomorph. Endomorph. Because he's so short. Mm, okay. Short and stocky and bulky. He could put on a lot of muscle or a lot of fat. Now I ask you, is he a little bit, I don't wanna I don't wanna say he's fat, but he's he's put on some fat since he's retired or whatnot, right? I don't know how much he works out anymore, you know. Exactly. But yeah. an ectomorph, even when they stop working out, they're still thin. they're less likely to pack on fat. Right. They might have a little belly, you know, but it's not as as pronounced. It's not as pronounced as an endomorph. An endomorph will pack on fat and muscle real quickly. And they're they're more they're more um they gravitate more towards power sports. So they can explode, but have they have less cardio. Whereas the ectomorph is like you'll see a lot of running backs. They're short, stocky, mm-hmm. endomorph, man. They have to explode for three, Would, four seconds. Is there a best body for fighting or is there uh you just adapt your style to whatever body you have? Exactly. I think there's a best body for basketball, a best body for football. Well, it depends what position you're playing. But fighting, everybody has an a, a fight in their DNA. So all styles, all, excuse me, all body types can fight. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so amazing. You get a, you get a Paul Harris. He's an endomorph, man. But he found a way to fight that makes sense for him. That's why I always tell people, you got to fight according to your, your body type. And people think that's crazy. No, Muhammad Ali fought a certain way because he has certain attributes he had certain he had certain uh, a certain personality. Even your personality is very important. Mm-hmm. If he tried to fight like Tyson, it would backfire. If right. Tyson tried to fight like Muhammad Ali, it would backfire. I think everybody has to start with the basics, and then after three four years of training, even maybe up to five years, now you got to specialize for what your temperament is, what your body type is, how what your personality is, because not everybody wants to get it done in round one. And not everybody is the type of person who's going to take it to the cards. And not everybody has a, a reach and speed to jab in and out. A lot mm. of people think, oh, I'm just going to jab in and out like Ali. Dude, you have the attributes that Ali has. He was born with certain attributes. And everybody's born with an attribute for fighting, in my opinion. Everybody got this far because they can fight. Nobody got here uh, this far without having some innate ability to fight, you know, to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So all... Our body types can defend themselves, but you have to discover how, how, what works best for that body type. Right. Tyson's a perfect example of that. Exactly. They I mean, thought he couldn't make it in the right. pros. Oh, they yeah, thought, oh, he's going to sure. get killed in the pros. Right. There's never been a short guy. When, when Ali was dancing around, people were like, no, that's not going to work. He's going to get tired. When he goes to the heavyweights, <laughs> right. heavyweights shouldn't bounce around. And Ali used to spar a lot with lightweights. He sparred six rounds with lightweights, then six rounds with a heavyweight. Why? Because he would play tag with the lightweight. It's just about speed and movement. Mm-hmm. You, you move twice as much with a lightweight. What is your thoughts on on hard sparring? Because when you see the ties and the way they mm-hmm. spar, there's some there's a great benefit in that. Mm-hmm, I mean, there's mm-hmm, a great benefit mm-hmm, in that barely hitting each other shit. Yeah, I do that. I do a tremendous amount of that. You know, one thing when people spar with me, they're like, "Man, you move so like, you know, people are like it's so seamless the way you move." And I I do thousands of hours of live rolling and sparring, but a lot of those hours, I would say eighty percent of them, is very light because I know the terrain. I just want to go through the sequences as many times as I can. And when I'm really, really warmed up, then I'll go hard. 
you know, I'll start talking smack a bit in the gym and I'll like, oh, come on, let's see what you got. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell the guy when it's time to go really hard mm-hmm. and we're having fun with it. You know, for me, having fun is really, really important. Now that's training for longevity. But if you have a fight, I think you need to do six weeks of hard sparring. Why? Because the speed of the fight is very particular. We need to get to fight speed the actual speed of the fight. Because you might get caught sleeping if you, if you haven't done that. Mm. Now, if you have a tremendous amount of fight experience, you, don't, you need less of that. So for instance, a Thai who's been fighting since he's eight years old, he can tune up just on the pads and go fight. Why? He's been doing it since the day he can, he can walk, you know, almost. Like you look at a Mayweather. I can get Mayweather ready with just a little mitt work, put him in there, he's gonna be the world champion. Why? It's, it's hardwired. If you look at a baby's brain, a baby's brain is not wrinkled like, a, like an adult's brain. It's wrinkled to a, a small degree. As he goes through his experiences, especially in the first three years of his life, his brain literally gets hardwired and wrinkled. And it gets less and less wrinkled over time. And when you're hardwired to do something, you, the likelihood of you needing to tune up is, is very, it's very minimal. Like, for instance, I remember looking at the biography of Mayweather and he was saying when he would go to picnics with his family, his father would bring boxing gloves and he would box with his cousins. <laughs> they literally would be punching each other. So for him, you know, he's, he, he's been doing it so long. The more experienced you are, the less heart sparring you need. Mm. The more seasoned you are, the less heart sparring you need. You know what fighting is. You just need a little tune-up at the end. So if you look at George, George is a great example. He's super skilled and he's super healthy. Some guys get to the high skill level, but they're broken up. Their body's broken. Their knee is broken. They can barely, they barely have three, four fights left in them. Right. Do you want to get really, really good and then be broken when you, when you got there? You finally, you know, you've been cultivating these skills for 15 years. You get there. You get those skills that you wanted. Oh, I can't use them. Why? My, the machine is broken. You know, I'm, th- I'm 38. I feel like when I was 20, uh, personally, because I spar, 80% of my sparring is very flow and relaxed. Like I use a lot of, I train a lot with purple belts, blue belts and purple belts. Why? Because they couldn't hurt me if they tried. I just toy with them till I'm warmed up. I'm flowing. I'm not really working hard. I'm just flowing. I'm just doing my combinations. Mm-hmm. And then when I really want to have a good challenge, I'll take one of the, my elite guys, one of my pros, and I'll do one or two rounds with them. You know, I won't burn my machine out. You know, like imagine driving your car in the red line all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a great way of looking at it. When, when you guys get ready for a fight, like say if you get George ready for a fight, how much time do you spend on working on his recovery from the workouts? Like... Like, do you, you bust out the Tim Tam machine and ice things down? Like, how, how aware of you are, we, are you guys of, like, do you have a, a, a regimented program of how to recover from exercise? Yeah, recovery is everything. So it's, it's stress plus recovery equals adaptation. Stress plus stress equals detraining mm. in injury. Yeah. A good trainer, a good trainer, he understands super compensation, right? You have stress, you have recovery. And then you have a new uh, level of skill or uh, ability. If you don't go through the recovery phase, you will not reap the rewards of your training. There has to be a recovery phase. Now, every athlete has a level of recovery that they can they can achieve. So as you get as you get more experience as an athlete, your body can can as you become uh, as you're as you're more and more fit, I should say, your body can recover from more stress. So I have to gauge how good my, my student is. It has to be challenging, but manageable. If I make it too challenging, I'm redlining him. He's going to break. His knee's going to pop. He's going to be unmotivated. If it's too easy, he's going to be bored. I have to find the right amount of stimulus. So when I'm in the practice room, if I see George is just mauling guys and destroying them, I have to make it, I have to scale the workout so that it's harder. 
but I don't want to scale it so high as that I injure him and break him or that he made it out of practice by a hair and now he's not motivated to do another camp. You know, we, we reach those high intensity levels periodically throughout the year and they have to be done in a certain way that it's fun. Like, you, you know, George was like, uh, you know, he was on your show and he was saying, I'll try to kill him in the practice room. <laughs> now, I, it's true, he's right. But I do it so rarely. I do it so periodically and I make it a joke. That's why, like, what he was trying to say is that I brought in the guys in the, in the room and I was watching them spar with George and they don't want to touch his face. This is when he was like a mega star, like he was the champ. And nobody wants to try to double leg him. Nobody wants to try to hurt him because they're like, I'm not going to come here in his house and try to show him. There's a respect thing. There's a, there's a, they're starstruck, you know, these young kids. So I would bring them in and I'd be like, listen, guys, I'd give a speech. The first guy to double leg him, the first guy to put him out, I would put like a $5,000 reward. Uh, I to think knock him out? To no hurt? If you knock George out, I'll give you 5,000 bucks. If, you put, if you put George on his back, if you put George on his back, if you take him down, put him on his back, I'll stop the whole practice and praise you for 20 minutes in front of everybody in the gym. And, and, and students don't get praised by me very often. <laughs> so George would be like, oh my God, these guys, are, they're coming after me. And he would get riled up. And I would do this periodically, rarely, right? We're, we're, we're talking about world, world title fight, you know, stuff's on the line. And I need these guys to actually show me where... George is missing something because when you have this perfect practice and you win all the time, mm -hmm. what do you work on? Well, nothing went wrong. There's right. nothing to fix. So, I mean, there are times where we really redline him. Have you ever had anybody knock him out in no, practice I, and he, take that he, money? <laughs> now, he's been dropped once in practice pretty badly. And um, it's a funny story, but the, the money wasn't on the line that time. <laughs> there uh. was no prize for that. <laughs> One time he got dropped in practice and um, I wanted to stop. The, I wanted to pull the plug. It was for a world title fight. He was fighting Dan Hardy two weeks before his fight. I, I was sure he was concussed. And I said, George, I'm pulling the, the, the round. There was one more round. He said to me, coach, let me finish the round. I'm okay. Let me finish the next round. And I felt that if I pulled him, I would have killed his confidence. Right. I would have killed his confidence totally. So I said, okay, you could do the next round. And I told the other guy he was sparring with, don't land a single glove. Like I whispered it to him, not a single glove on him. Just take a mauling. And George went in the next round, not knowing that the other guy's not allowed to hit him at all. <laughs> and he just crushes the guy, right? He's just like mauls him and gets that. And I was really, really grateful for the other, the other guy was a pro. And I was very, very grateful that, you know, he took the beating that we asked him to. Right. And um, George after was like, man, I, I know, I, I know I, it went bad in round four, but round five was amazing. I was on fire in round five. I said, you were on <laughs> You were, you were. That's like, sneaky shit. He's like... I, 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 that was just, round four was not, it was just a fluke, you know, like this, this, this is what I'm going to look like round five. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, and it's a good thing. It's Friday, you know, because I have the day off tomorrow. I'm like, George, today's Saturday. He's like, wow. he was shocked. And he was like, today's Saturday. I'm like, yeah. And, and the, the UFC was there filming. So I had to like, look guys, that footage can never air. You know, that footage has got to disappear. You know, they're like, yeah, don't worry. You know, we understand the fights on the line. He was fighting down Hardy two weeks later. Yeah. That's why that fight, he was doing a lot of wrestling. Because we didn't want to, like, even chance. I, I was sure he had a concussion when he went in that fight. Wow. Now, pulling the plug on that fight, a lot of people would be like, hey, you put, his, you put his health on the line. You're right. But it's so much pressure. First of all, George didn't, it has nothing to do with UFC. We kept it from UFC. Like, we told him, like, we told the camera guys, bury this. Like, don't report it. Like, George would never want to uh, um, back out of that fight. It was two weeks from now. Everybody's coming to watch this fight. Like, this this fight, you know, it's been, it's been on the... Uh, what do you call the prime time? It's been mm -hmm. like three weeks they're filming. You know, like this is happening. This fight is happening no matter what. You know, the George is in that mindset. And, uh, but he went there, honestly, like, uh, you know, after he got dropped pretty badly. 
Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, Forrest Griffin got knocked out twice before his fight with Anderson Silva. Oh, man. Twice. And apparently one of them was real bad. Really? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So I think, dangerous. I think he was sparring with Vanderlei. And uh, apparently you don't spar with Vanderlei. No. Huh? It's just fights. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's old school shoot the box, especially back then. Oh, my God. Yeah. Forrest won't really talk about it too much because he, you know, he doesn't, want, doesn't want it to be perceived as an excuse, but... He, uh, I mean, how many times have fighters done that? Many, many fighters Countless. have done that. Countless. Yeah. To the point where, like, I just let the fighter decide now, unless I really feel like it's it's urgent, which is rare that I've actually had to intervene because at the end of the day, when are you 100%? It really rarely happens. There's always something. Right. But the thing about getting knocked out is that if you get knocked out two weeks ago, mm -hmm. your odds of getting mm -hmm. knocked out are significantly higher. I know. I know, man. It's 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 crazy. And Dan Hardy is a really good strike. Oh my God, that left hook! If it would have touched yeah. George, George would have been out like a light. <sighs> He's got a cr crazy left hook. Plus, George yeah. was hurt two weeks before. Yeah. Thank God it worked out well. Yeah, it worked out great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh the balancing act of being a trainer is not something that I envy. No, it's tough. It's, it's tough because I care for these guys, honestly. Yeah, like, it has sure nothing do. to do with the business or the money. I couldn't care less. Like yeah. I could not care less. But. I know that that guy, he's on a one-way track. So if I'm telling him, no, hit the brakes, mm -hmm. and he's saying we're going, that, that break in harmony is going to create a friction and create a doubt in the fighter. Right. You know, you're, are you all in? Are right. you all in? You know, because if you're not all in, you're going to scare your fighter. Right. There's, there's that to consider as well. Yeah. Um, when you look at the crop of up-and-coming talent, I mean, it, this is such a crazy time for MMA. I think when you look at these new guys, like uh, Zabit is one of mm -hmm, my mm -hmm. favorite guys to watch because mm -hmm. he's this this new crop of guys that can do everything, and they're they're so high level. By the time you see them, like the, the, the first fight I saw of Zabit in inside the octagon, I, you know, I've seen him on video before, but seeing him live, you're like, holy shit, he's amazing. Like, but he's not just amazing. It's like this is this is this next level like there's mm -hmm. another level like we've seen this uh, these elite fighters and everyone's great at jujitsu everyone's got great takedown defense everyone knows how to strike but then you're seeing this new flavor this like this okay the frequency is now higher and it just seems to me that every year or so there's these new guys that jump mm. through and you're going okay well now the frequency is quite a bit higher than it was before it's seamless yeah. The transitions are more and more seamless, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. Like you're, you're saying they're processing it faster. Yeah. And as they're doing the takedown, like Demetrius is flowing into an armbar before right. the takedown is even finished. Yeah. And you're like, the next generation is watching that. Mm -hmm. And they've adopted that now. Yep. So they're going to flow into a transition into an armbar. Like it's, it's, getting, it's getting more and more seamless. Their computers are, are, are computing faster and faster information. Yeah. They're thinking what they're going to do on the ground before it hits the ground. It's, 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 it is incredible. And they know what can be done now. They've mm -hmm. seen it all. The possibilities. So, yeah, so they have this database in their mind of accomplishments that have already been achieved they've by been, other fighters. Yeah, They've been awakened. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. fucking crazy, man. When you stop and think about when you first got involved in the sport and then look at the level that fighters are at now, there's not really a commensurate sport in terms of like modern mainstream sports where you've people have achieved such an incredibly high level of proficiency that so far exceeds where it was a decade ago or two decades ago. There's really no, no, no comparison. The growth rate is ridiculous. It's fucking it's amazing. Incredible. And I, I don't think it's a, 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 
a coincidence that the growth rate in this sport is incredible. And this is the sport that has the most amount of variables in terms of combat mm -hmm. sports. The most amount of variables mm -hmm. in terms of what, what a fighter can do to you. There are more uh, ways to win than any other combat sport, obviously. Yeah. And that's why I find it. See, the more you limit us, an athlete, the more it's about torque. So, for instance, if you look at sprinting, if I were to race Hussein Bolt and I had all the best trainers, the best sprint coaches, and Hussein Bolt had the most mediocre, mediocre sprint coaches, and we race when we're both 20 years old in our prime, who's going to win? You. I appreciate the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, yeah, the confidence. It's, I mean, it's a joke question, right? But he's going to win, yeah, right? For sure. Put us in MMA. We're the same weight class, same height. Everything's the same. He, I have the best coaches. He has the worst coaches. Who's going to win? You're going to fuck him up. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. Because coaching now is, has a greater um, influence. You yeah. know, sprinters say, sprint coaches say, we can make you faster. We cannot make you fast. You have to be born fast and we mm. could shave off a few milliseconds. Yeah. In MMA, we can make you, I can take a regular Joe and get him all the way up to UFC. I can't make him UFC champion. I won't say I can make him UFC champion. To be UFC champion, you need a talent. Right. Okay, there's a, there's a, there's a talent there to be in the 1%. But to get you to UFC, because there are so many possibilities, there are so many ways to trick your opponent, there are so many ways to turn the tables on him, mm -hmm. that torque no longer matters, or torque is uh, less significant. So if we're talking about football, where I'm only allowed to do these certain maneuvers, trickery is put to the side. You're not allowed to trick me. But in MMA, you're allowed to trick me any which way you want. There are very few little rules, okay? But outside of these, these uh, barred rules, these barred maneuvers, you can trick me any which way you want. So what happens is you take your opponent into a maze. You take your opponent into a world where torque doesn't matter so much. And that's why the more restrictive a, a sport is, let's say, for instance, boxing. Boxing is more restrictive than Muay Thai. So the guys with torque are going to do better in boxing than they will necessarily in Muay Thai because in Muay Thai I can use more trickery. Mm. I could be a little dweeb and just beat you with clinching, or I could beat you with a trick kick, or I could beat you with a back, a back kick. Now, for instance, a back kick, anybody can generate knockout power with a back kick. However, with a right cross or left hook, not everybody's going to have that bone-crushing power. However, if you teach somebody how to throw a proper back kick, which you know because you got the best back kick in the game, you could teach a, a regular Joe in a few years how to generate knockout power. So now he's ha he has that element on the table. So because MMA is so... Um, uh, you know, there's so few rules. We have a, a greater environment for the intellect to, to, to shine. Mm. You said something once to one of your fighters in between rounds, and it really stood out. You said, I want you to overwhelm his mind with possibilities. Like right. you're, you're, you're overwhelming him. You're making him think about all the potential variables that are coming his way. Right. Like, that is a great way to put it. Mm. We talk about um, uh, variety. So everybody's looking for a pattern. If I do jab, jab, cross, and I do it three, four times, the fourth time, you're, you're going to see it. It's going to be slower to you. Why? Because your body is going to, your brain is, is th again, this is all hypothetical. This is just my personal experience. I'm basing this on my own personal experience. When somebody does something to me a second or third time, it, I see it. Personally, I feel like I'm perceiving it slower. And I have a window to counter you. However, when I spar with George, George is the trickiest guy. I'll tell you why. Because he's, he has so many tricks. He has so many attacks that he rarely, rarely ever shows you the same trick twice and he's the master at adapting so if you do a trick on him once and you try it again he's going to shut you down so look at all his rematches when he rematched bj penn when he rematched matt hughes every time they rematch it was progressively worse the third time he fought matt hughes was even easier 
don't try the same trick on George twice. You're going to get crushed. And I, I think that's why me, as a, as a martial artist, I developed like a lot of variety of skill. Because every week I'd have to come up with a new trick or George is going to shut that down. So after 10 <laughs> years, I started becoming like a trickster. You know, what other magic trick can I get away with one time? Because yeah. next week I knew a new trick because it won't work on him again. He's, he's going to get wise to it. He's a master at, at it, it might work once on him. The second time, you're going to get shut down. Well, I feel like that, was a factor in Dominic Cruz losing to Cody Garbrandt. Exactly. Because those alpha male guys had seen exactly. that trick so many times. Exactly. They're like, okay, we can, like, apparently Justin Buckholz can imitate Dominic right. Cruz in training. Like right. that weird herky-jerky movement exactly. with the hands down. Exactly. He's a weird one, man. He's one he of the is. weird, out of all the fighters I've ever watched fight, yeah. Dominic might be the weirdest. I agree. Because you, you look at him and he's, first of all, he's such a, he's a great guy. Very mm. smart guy, but he's crazy in in weird ways. Like one of the things that he says, like, oh, I'm just not very flexible. <laughs> like, what are you? Why are you even saying that? Like, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Like, why not get more flexible? Mm. It's like it's not like saying like, oh, uh, I'm too short. Well, you can't right. grow, so you're right. fucked. You know, you're never gonna play basketball. Mm. Saying I'm not flexible enough. That's is like, an easy fix. That's the dumbest thing to ever say. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's so it's so much more dumb than I'm not strong enough. Well, if you gain weight from muscle, you might not be in that weight right. class anymore. You got a real problem right. there. Right. But I'm not flexible enough. You got zero problem. You mm. just have to stretch. Yeah. But he doesn't stretch. Right. Like we were talking about jujitsu techniques. He's like, oh, I can't play that hard guard, guard, uh, high guard shit. I don't have any flexibility. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what are you saying? Like that doesn't make any sense. And like head kicks and mm. things along those lines. He's like very stiff in his legs with throwing kicks. I'm like, that's that's that, an easy fix. Yeah, it's an easy fix. Mm. Why wouldn't you fix that? Mm, that's a good question. It's, but but also the mindset of a champion in this same guy. Who mm. just just ah fuck it I, I'm not flexible, like I don't even understand how those things live together in the same mind. If I was training him, I would make him head kick. Like that's what I would insist on. Head All kicks have long. to be there because yeah. he doesn't knock guys out with his hands. So he, the head kick has to always be a possibility, always yeah. a threat. And then you will knock out guys with your hands because they'll have their high guard up because they don't want that kick. And then the uppercut will come, the body shot will come, the back kick will come. I'll make him back kick for sure. Like if you don't have power in your hands, you need to back kick. You need to head kick. Those are two weapons that can always knock a guy out. Mm. So you don't back kick, you don't head kick, you never score knockouts. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, man. It's uh, when Did you see this Stephen Thompson thing with Darren Till where he wants them to outlaw that side kick to the knee? No, I didn't see that. Well, apparently his knee got really fucked up in the Darren Till fight. Mm. You know, what do you, what do you think about that side kick to the knee that everyone's doing? Not even the oblique kick, just a front leg side kick to the knee, the same way Yoel Romero used it on right. Robert Whitaker fucked up his knee in the first fight, right. and then Whitaker used it on Romero like mm -hmm. right away Beautiful. in the second fight Beautiful. to fuck up his knee. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a legitimate kick. Yeah, it's I a legitimate one hundred percent kick. It it allows the smaller, weaker guy to hurt the bigger, stronger guy. Well, and in the case of Darren Till, it allows the bigger, stronger guy yes. to hurt the other big, of stronger course. guy. <laughs> if it works for the smaller guy, it works for the bigger guy. Yeah. Right? It's but, just a legit... It's, I think so, too. It's a legit yeah. technique you have it's to prepare a, for. Yeah, exactly. You're standing in a way that... You see, when somebody's standing sideways, mm -hmm. they're harder to punch. They're easier to kick. So you're saying, look, I want to stand in this way where I'm harder to punch, but I don't want you to kick me. Mm -hmm. So if I stand square, I'm more susceptible to back kick more susceptible to punches, but less susceptible to leg kicks or the oblique kick or the side kick to the knee or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying to you, don't punch me because I'm more vulnerable this way. So whatever your vulnerability is, 
you chose that vulnerability by standing sideways. Why don't yes. the Thais stand sideways? Because they know they're going to get chopped to the leg, right? They're mm -hmm. always fighting good kickers. They're always fighting amazing kickers. When you go to Thailand, the guy may be a good puncher, but he's for sure a great kicker. Like you're not going to run into a guy who doesn't know how to kick. They all know how to kick knee and elbow. And some of them know how to punch really, really well also. So they stand in a way, Muay Thai has developed in a way that's very anti-kick, anti-knee, anti-elbow. And it's not as defensive to the punches. So if I want to stand, if I want to avoid punches, I'll stand more bladed. Let's say I'm, I'm fighting a, like a BJ Penn who's very heavy handed and more of a puncher. He doesn't kick much. Well, I'm going to stand bladed. Like you see with George, we made him drop one hand. Why? So he can use his jab from, from down to up, right? Because it's faster, has a greater reach, and it's harder to counter. Whereas if you would have stood more square in Muay Thai, it would have been useless because BJ doesn't kick. Mm -hmm. But then you'd be more open to punches. Right. So the way you're standing, the way a Wonder Boy is standing, the, the antagonist to that, the, the antidote to that is that kick. So how could you stand that way? Just switch the way you're standing. And now, it, okay, now you're more open to punches, but that's adaptation. That's what fighting is about. Yeah. It's rock, paper, scissors. If I use rock, I, I, don't, I don't outlaw paper. I don't say everybody, hey, nobody is allowed to use paper. <laughs> no, but that's the antidote to what you're doing. Yeah. And when the ties fight, they have that very light front leg, which mm -hmm. would prevent that front leg side kick to the knee. Exactly. Because they're always like very light. So if you kick their knee, they're, it's just going to go backwards anyway. But to stand that way, they're standing that way at a cost. Yes. The punches. And also the cost, they, they don't have the ability to use that movement, that front, Lateral. Leg, front leg movement the way that Wonder Boy does too. Mm -hmm. Wonder Boy is the master of the front leg. Uh -huh. Like he's, he's the best at standing completely sidekick. When he fought uh, Johnny Hendricks, a good example, he threw mm. a sidekick to the body, Hendricks stood there, and then he went to a roundhouse kick master. to the face with the same leg. Masterpiece. And, and Hendricks, you could see, was like, fuck, like, yeah. what is this guy doing? Yeah. It's like, thump. Okay, back. Oh, shit. Like, he thought, like, yeah, you got me with that, but that's not a big deal. And then, pop, he gets roundhouse kicked in the face. That was a, a masterful performance. Yeah. yeah, it was one of his best, for sure. It was incredible. Well, it just shows you the difference between a guy who is, you know, just trying to, like, kind of plot in with mm. a, a limited movement and a guy like Wonder Boy, who's just one of the most difficult guys to sort of pin down. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, his style is very unique, and I'm, I'm fascinated with him, and I'm really fascinated right now with Michael Venom Page. Mm -hmm. Been watching, do you see his pro boxing fights? No, I didn't see. Right now he's a can Actually, crusher. I saw, one. I saw one, yeah. He's a can crusher. Yeah. He's, he's fighting these guys, and they're setting him up for these yeah. spectacular knockouts. Right. But it's still that blitz point karate style that Raymond mm -hmm. Daniels has, mm -hmm. that a lot mm -hmm. of these guys have, and Raymond's obviously mm -hmm. adapted very well for kickboxing. I've trained with Raymond quite a bit. He's a beast. You got to get him on the show, man. He's such I would a great love guy. To. Yeah, I have to connect you too. Okay. He's amazing. Yeah, we had talked a little bit in the past mm. about perhaps doing something on Twitter. He knocks guys out in about 90 seconds on a regular basis. And how does he do it? He does it with the back kick. He's the yeah. master at finding a place for the back kick. You don't want to get hit with his back kick. Like, I know mm. you got an incredible back kick. I bet you it's more powerful than his. Okay. But I'll tell you one thing he will fit that back kick between, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. he'll do it in a way. You won't see it coming. Mm -hmm. It's going to hurt so much more. Yeah. Now, he rarely knocks guys out with his hands. He does surprise guys with his hands every so often. But that back kick, you don't want to be there. Well, he seems like he's getting better with his hands. Yes, his yes. His hands are improving. But he's, He trains a lot. Yeah. He trains a lot, that guy. I'm sure. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's still at it. And he's, what, 35, 36 now? Yeah, I would say, around yeah. there. That one, was it, uh, what's his name, Ombang? Was that the guy he knocked out with that touch front leg side kick and then jumped oh up in the air God. and hit him with a spinning back kick to the face? 
Woo! That was some video game shit. That's unbelievable. He just jumps up, top, pop, and then hits him with the second kick. Yeah, Double that's kick. a standard kick. Yes, it is. You know, for for Raymond Daniels, but he does it the best I've ever seen yeah. personally. No, no one better. You know, right. you got to go back to like Rick the Jet Rufus. Oh my! You know, yeah. when when he fought that the, that really classic fight where he fought that tie fighter and he got mm-hmm, his legs mm-hmm, chopped mm-hmm, out, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. everybody was like, "Oh shit!" That <laughs> people really got to understand the Muay Thai Muay Thai. But he hit that guy with that same kick, that front leg mm-hmm. side kick, and then spun in the air and hit him with a turning side kick in the face. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's, I love watching that point karate style, that blitz style. I love it. I love watching that enter into MMA because I used to spar with a lot of those guys, and it's fucking hard to deal with. Mm. Those guys that are really good at that, 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 that fast sprint at you, blitz. And when you do that, and then you also have takedown defense and Muay Thai skills and jiu-jitsu, it's like, fuck, man, that's a, that's a lethal skill to have. Mm. I, love, I love doing boxing, Muay Thai, karate, taekwondo. I love I love blending it all. I believe all of it. Here it is, is right here. Boom! Yeah. Just... Play that play that back again. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. This is fucking crazy shit the way he does it too. He just hops up, touches you with the front leg, bang! And the second one's and look he looks down like he's in a fucking video game. I but... mean, that is crazy that this guy is pulling that off. That was when he was in glory. Look at this. Tap. Boom! Oh, I mean my. come on, man. Who the fuck does that? <laughs> And he does that all the time, eh? That's the that's time. not that's not like a one off. No, no, he could do that all day. Yeah. I mean, they, there's a lot of those karate guys that have that skill set. They 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 can do like, you know, those breaking demonstrations where they hold up pads and they'll do three sixty wheel kicks and break pads. And mm. I mean, there's there's some legitimate karate and traditional martial arts techniques that are finding their way into MMA. Absolutely. You just have to know how to use it. Yeah. And uh, just because a karate guy got beat up by a grappler doesn't mean all the karate he's trained is not right. good. Exactly. He needs, it, to learn, needs to learn how to grapple. Exactly. He needs yeah. to learn how to stay on his feet. He needs to learn how to grapple. And he needs to learn to set that kick up in a way. Because the thing is, if you're always fighting another karate guy and then you fight a boxer, the bo- boxer's behavior is just different. You mm-hmm. have to get, it's like what we were saying before. You have to get used to it. And then all of a sudden, you saw the same movie a hundred times. You know how to deal with it. You know, it's like you watch the same movie over and over again. You start... You start predicting what the, the scene is going to be. You, you're not caught by surprise. When you're caught by surprise, you're done. Right. You've never done jiu-jitsu before, and I'm doing an armbar, a basic armbar. You're getting caught with it. Mm-hmm. You know That's why I believe you got to know everything out there, but you got to specialize. Don't, don't try to master everything. Mm-hmm. Know everything. Like I like to know Dars, triangle, heel hook, even though I'm not a, necessarily a Dars guy. But I want to know everything about Dars. I don't want to drill it all day long. I just want to know about it. Right. Because when you're trying to put your Dars on, I know what you're trying to do. I'm familiar with what you're going for. I can break out of it. You don't go for Darces? I do, I do, I do. But I, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's my best submission. I do do Darces, no doubt about it. Well, you are, you don't have the longest arms in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you ever try a Japanese necktie? Uh, yes. I don't use them that much, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. It's them. the solution for guys mm. who don't have long arms. Really? I, I have short arms too, but the Japanese necktie became a specialist at that. Mm, you, really? Yeah. You get that clamp over the top okay. of the neck and then you drop down with the left shoulder and you tuck the head into the mm. forehead and you hook one of the legs with your oh, leg yeah, yeah, yeah. and crank that neck mm. up. So it's a, you're pushing in with your chest and then cranking mm. that. It's, it I comes, it. it comes I'll quick too. It it's a nasty, nasty neck crank. Mm. I love it. It's just Amazing. so good, and it's also it's it's there a lot. It's one of those mm. techniques that people they're not aware of the danger of that that one position. You know, there's a, a few guys that are really good at it, and you know, whenever you feel that arm going underneath your neck, you're like, "Fuck, I gotta get out of here." 
because it's such an easy one to cinch up. Like yeah. the Dars is hard. It's hard to cinch to get all us, the way up. For yeah. us, yeah, yeah. Like I remember working with Marcelo. Like I got to train Marcelo Garcia, and uh, we were doing a, just a one-on-one a training session. And uh, he was telling me he doesn't like Dars, but I was like, he doesn't teach Dars, doesn't believe in Dars. And I'm like. But your arms are short, you know? If you have yeah. this monstrously long guy, you won't tell him to do darts. No, 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 don't do darts. It's not good. It's not good submission because your arm's in the way. I'm like, dude, there's some guys with the the, the most devastating darts. Like, you, you don't want to be in their darts, you yeah. know? Yeah, Tony Ferguson. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't like leg locks. He says, no, leg locks are no good. But oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> imagine if Paul Harris walks into your gym and you're like, no, don't do leg locks. It's like, dude, that's his game. But man. he tapped out Rico Rodriguez with a heel hook you're right. in Abu Dhabi. He would tell you, I was there. it's not a good submission. It shouldn't have worked. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. He was telling me he doesn't like uh, his guys to wrestle. I'm like, why? I'm like, when you fought Jake Shields, you did a single leg and you took him down. He's like, he shouldn't have fell. So Jake Shields shouldn't have fell, he said. But I'm like, your wrestling is good. He's like, no, 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 you shouldn't wrestle a wrestler at all. What the And I was fuck? like, I, I, get, I get what you're trying to say, but there's a time and place where I'll wrestle a wrestler when I see a good vulnerability. Yeah. And um, I don't know, he, he's very, I think he's changed over the years, but when I was, when I rolled with him, he was like at the top, you know, you, I mm-hmm. wouldn't question him. I wouldn't right. like, you know, who am I to, who am I to tell him? I don't agree. You know, like he doesn't like Kimura. He would tell me, no, don't do Kimura. Too much like, muscle, right? That's what he uh, said. It's a power move. Yeah, yeah. It's a power move. Yeah. But when you look at his career, he, all the things he doesn't like, he's, that's what he's been caught with. Like, uh, right. Braulio caught him with the Dars. Uh, Jacare caught, caught him with the Kimura. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. Um, that's right. Braulio caught him with the Dars. Didn't, um, who else caught him with the Dars? Braulio caught him uh, once or twice. Once, I think. Um, oh, uh, D- Drysdale. Drysdale, 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 Drysdale caught him yeah, with the Dars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Dars work real good, They, <laughs> they do. When, if, when you, if you have the attributes, they're great. Yeah. Why would he say he doesn't teach the Dars? That's so crazy. I think he's got short arms and for yeah. him it doesn't work. He doesn't like uh, arm triangle. Says no, forget the arm triangle. What? Yeah, I'm like, dude. That's you ever feel George's arm triangle? Like, arm triangles are nasty. Yeah, yeah. Arm yeah. This is destructive. Well, a guy like George is such a crusher. He's got long arms yeah. too, and he's heavy. Oh my! He's just heavy puts that weight on you. Dude. He knows how to control and squish. I will never let my arm get across my body because I know it's over. <laughs> There's two things you never want to give George: Kimura, because he'll rip your arm off, mm-hmm. and two, dar- uh, an, uh, arm triangle. Arm triangle. Yeah, katakatami. Yeah, there's there's uh, Rafael Lovato. He's he's got a nasty fucking arm triangle. Mm. You know, he's competing in Bellator now. I'm I'm always fascinated when I see like super super high level jujitsu guys that enter into MMA mm. because I'm like, okay, well for sure these guys who are used to just training MMA and train they are not going to know what the fuck mm-hmm, hits mm-hmm. them when a guy like Hodger Gracie grabs them. Or mm. like a guy like Damian Maya. And we've seen it time and time again. There's, there's a difference in the level. And so the argument is always, should you be just, like, what's the best way to be? Is the best way to be an elite specialist at one particular thing, like mm. a Raymond Daniels mm. or a Wonder Boy? Or is it to be a guy who can kind of do everything really well, like mm. George? So here's my perspective on that. That's such a great question. I mean, that's the heart of training. You could flood your system so that what does that mean when you flood your system you're giving your student too many things to master he's Mm. just really not good at anything right or you can bottleneck him you're giving him too few skills that people know what he does like for instance a classic example is chuck liddell he went on a tear for a while but he's still the same guy and after a while the next generation they understood what he does they understood the pockets where you're safe where you're in danger like mashita is a great example Early on, he was such a mystery. Now we're like, okay, we get what he does. We've understood his patterns. Patterns are huge in fighting and in life, period. Human beings are pattern-detecting machines. Whether they know it or not, whether they can verbalize it or not, 
We are pattern detecting machines. That's why I like sparring a lot because sparring, I've had a thousand people throw a right hand at me. When you throw your right hand, my mind, the subconsciously is going to compare that right hand you're throwing to a thousand different right hands I saw. And it's going to see it looks matches this one the most. Again, this is my narrative. And this is what I see. And this has personally been my experience, right? When I train somebody who's new and you throw a punch at them, they flinch. Why? They, you've overwhelmed them with information. But after a while, they see a punch and they're relaxed and they see it and, they, and it seems slow motion because at first it was too fast for them. It's too much to compute. Mm. So my students, what I do is I give them a small amount of technique and when they get better, I give them a new technique. So I, I want them to get a certain level of competence with that technique. And my standard is it has to be instinctual. If the technique is instinctual, I've taught it to you well. Meaning if you've done it live on the mat, on a regular basis, you execute on a regular basis, it's time for me now to give you another gem. Because if I don't give you another gem, I'm going to bottleneck your art. You're going to become too predictable. But if I give you a gem too early, if I give you another technique too early, I'm flooding your system. I'm flooding the, your game. It's, your game is just is diluted. It's just too weak. So with George, we're always reinventing George for the next fight. We're always adding one new or two new gems, depending on how much time we have. But there's always an X factor. When you fight him, he's not going to do the same patterns we did the last fight. You could watch his tape. That's why I told George... Why is it harder to be champion than to become champion? Because when you're champion, everybody's watching you and studying your patterns. It's mm. a matter of time be before your old news. So you got to reinvent yourself before the next fight. That's why I didn't want him fighting three times a year. I told him you fight twice a year. And they were making comparative with Chuck. I got a lot of heat for that. They're like, Chuck fights three times a year. George should fight three times a year. We're like, we'll see what, how, how our careers go. But I want George to fight twice a year. Because to reinvent him takes six months. We're going to do that twice a year. That way he'll be champion longer. I told him, I, I, I used to tell him when he became champion, I said, I want you to be champion for 10 years. It happens in boxing. It's going to happen to an MMA for the first time. There's going to be a champion for 10 years. I used to tell him that when, when he first won the belt. And he was like, really? How are we going to do that? You're going to re we're going to cycle. We're going to do only training camps that last six months. You can only really do a training camp every six months. If you want to hit a new level, it takes six months. Every fight, you're going to be at a new level and you're going to do something nobody knows. They, they haven't seen it before. How did you come up with these numbers? What, what made you decide um, six I read, months? I read one very influential book uh, called uh, The New Power Program by Michael Kogan. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have heard of the book. I have it's not read book. it. He says, look, there's two programs. There's either, there, there, he says, look, if you can do a, a training program shorter than six months, you're either Superman or you're dumb. Like, he, he, he formulated it in the way. He says, I never met Superman. A real training program is six months long. So that just always really influenced me. I think his book was really, really basic. And this is one of the first books I read on, on training. And it really influenced me. He, taught, he, taught, he teaches in the book Periodization, but he dumbs it down really, really well. So if you read Tudor Pompa's book on periodization, it's just too much uh, intellectual jargon. It's hard for a regular Joe, especially at the stage I was then, to read that book and understand what he's trying to say. And I, it's, like today I can understand it. But Michael Kogan made it really simple for me. And he's like, look, if you want to train and reach a new level, it takes six months. This is the body's natural process. So it would be like trying to uh, you know, plant a seed and have an, uh, an, an apple tree in three months. No, he says, no, the apple tree grows at a certain rate. So a human body does things at a certain rate. There's no way around it. You need stress, you need recovery, then you adapt adaptation. Here's the, the cycles you have to go through to reach a new level. And it ends with a plyometric cycle. Now today, I don't really use that system anymore because I've found better ways over the years. It ends with a plyometric cycle? Yes. Why does it end with a plyometric because cycle? Because you have to hit the speed of your sport. So for instance, let's say you do a lot of back squatting. 
Okay, let's see you do back squat. And your numbers on the back squat go up. Do you think that's going to make you a better fighter? No. No. Why? So why do the squatting? Because it'll make you stronger. Okay, but does it make you stronger on the field, in the octagon? It can make you stronger in certain positions. In certain positions. Yes. Now, I think Michael Kogan would say it can make you stronger in certain positions if you can apply that force over a certain time. So power and strength are two different things. Power, strength is, can you lift that bar? It weighs 500 pounds. You can lift it? Okay, good. Can you get that bar off the ground and locked out in 1.5 seconds? That's the question we want to ask for sports. Mm. How fast can you apply the force? That's power. Force over time. Uh, strength over time. So when you want to shoot a double leg, you have to do it in the window. So that's why the plyometric phase is the last phase. It's very important that you need to take all that strength you cultivated and translate it to a level of speed. So I need George to change level and explode in a, in a fraction of a second. So that's why I like things like sprinting, track and field, etc. These are things done in a short period of time. The ground contact, the ground force reaction, the, the time you spend on the ground applying force into the ground. So when you want to apply force on a, on a person, you first have to apply the force on, in the ground. And then that ground, then that reaction is applied into the into your opponent, right? So every action has an opposite equal reaction. How fast can you apply apply that force into the ground? Now, squatters, if I take you and I make you squat, a slow squat, down and up, I'm training you like a tow truck, right? Then I measure your vertical jump. Your vertical jump is going to have gone down after you've done six months of uh, squatting. It's not going to have gone up. Why? Because you're training like a tow truck. You're telling your body, look, I need to lift lots of amount, lots of heavy weights in a slow in a slow fashion. However, if I make you do plyometrics or I make you do Olympic lifting, you know, Olympic lifting is very fast. It's 1.5 second contraction on the hamstring, 1.5 second. And, and there's a certain point where it's 0.5 seconds. Then I make you uh, test your vertical. Now your vertical has gone up. So there's an element of speed. So Michael Kogan, at the end of the program, he does a, a, a four week or three week phase of, uh, he calls it the link cycle, where you're doing plyometrics. This is very important. That's fascinating. I've never heard it put that way, and I, I like that thought. I like the thought process behind it. I, I think there's a there's a lot of people that are using a lot of plyometric drills now, um, and uh, it's way more common when you see like training montages of mm -hmm. guys hopping over hurdles. Mm -hmm. But I really have to think that George was one of the first guys I ever saw do that stuff. Yeah. I used to tell him, "Do you want to train like a tow truck, or do you want to train like a Ferrari? Which one do you want to be?" Do you want if you look at Damian Maya, he's like a tow truck. Yeah. He's stiff. Even when he throws a punch, he's very stiff. Yeah. Why? Because years of gi training is like... Yeah. I've trained my body to make an isometric hold. And now your, your body behaves isometrically. Why are you asking it to do anything different? Right. I never ask my body to do something in practice that I don't want it to do on fight night. Mm. So I do believe squatting is important. Squatting is important to develop a general strength. So let's say, for instance, you're always doing plyometrics. Well, you might have an overuse injury. Certain muscles are not being activated. You go on the squat rack, you do a few squats. And I, I believe you got to do squats, um, not, not too heavy, about 70% of your max, and do it fast. You'll still get all the benefits. What about lowering it? Uh, lowering it how? Do you lower it fast or do you lower it slow? Lower it fast and up fast. Really? Yeah. So, for instance, Fred Hatfield, he's uh, probably said it best. Okay. He said he's the first man to officially squat 1,000 pounds. He said, look. Throw a baseball, uh, throw a throw a, a paper. You take a paper, you crumple it up, and you throw it. It's too light for it to 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 go anywhere. You throw it really hard, but because it's so light, it doesn't go anywhere. Take a bowling ball. Well, bowling ball's too heavy. You throw it, doesn't go anywhere. You take a baseball. That's the right amount of resistance. It's the right amount of weight. Now you're gonna apply more force on that baseball. You're gonna get more force out of it. Why? It's the it's in the Goldilocks range. 
So for instance, let's say, let's make it really simple. Okay, let's say you weigh zero pounds. I put you on a scale, you weigh zero pounds, you have a bar on your back, the bar weighs 100 pounds. Okay, so we're looking at the scale now. The scale says 100 pounds. The bar is on your back. Let's take away your weight just to make it really simple. You go down and up. The scale is going to read 101. That's the minimum amount of power you have to put into that, that, that scale for it to come up. So when you go down, the scale is going to say 100, 100. As you come up, it's going to say 101. For it to have a positive trajectory, you have to apply 101 pounds upwards. Uh, so, sorry, downwards, and then the reaction will be upwards. If I put that weight on my back, if I put 70 pounds, if I take 70% of the weight, and I go up and down really fast on the scale, the scale is going to read 101 minimum. For me to, if I explode up really fast, it's going to read 101, 100, 203. Now, I got the benefits of a maximum contraction. Let's say 100 pounds was the maximum you can lift. But I don't have the weight of 100 pounds on me. Mm. You know, somebody who, who, who really made this popular is uh, Louis Simmons. He learned it from the Russians. Mm-hmm. You know, Louis Simmons? Have you had him on your show? Yes. He's a brilliant trainer. He's a fascinating he's guy. A f- he's a he's brilliant out of his human being. Mind too. He's out of his mind. <laughs> we, we interviewed him as, in his gym. Really? Yeah, in uh, Columbus. It was great. But I he's a genius car. when it comes to yes. lifting. Yeah. He's a genius. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Like he read super training. I also read super training. And super training is about lowering the rates to the right amount and doing a plyometric with it. You get the same benefits as using maximum weight, but you don't get the side effects, the soreness, the injury, the redlining. You don't get any of that. So the Russians found a great way to apply maximum force on a bar, but they also get speed. They're not training like tow trucks. They're training like Ferraris. That's actually where I got the term from Louis Simmons. He really mm. like clarified it for me, made it really simple. So like what kind of, like say if you could bench press uh, 315 pounds, what mm. would you use? Use between 65 to 80% of that weight and then just do it quick. Boom. Hmm. Boom, you'll get the same amount of resistance if you do it quickly as if you had maximum weight on it. Hmm. So he doesn't use maximum weight except for once a, a week. And the reason why he explains it is he says, look, you have proprioceptors in your system. Proprioceptors is like, it's what tells you if your arm is up or down, if your arm is bent to your chest. If, your arm, if, if, you, if I close your eyes and I lift your arm, you'll be like, you lifted my arm. Well, how do you know that? Proprioceptors. He says, if you, if you put on a, let's say, you, let's say you're working with um, 75 pounds and your maximum is 100. When you go to lift that day and, and on, on the competition day, when you get 100 on your bones, your body's going to be like, hey, I've never felt that amount of weight. There's an orthokinetic reflex. Shut the muscles down. We've never felt that weight. This is the narrative that he gives us. He says, because you've never felt that weight, your body is not going to allow you. There's a safety mechanism in your body. It says, look, this is, this is, we're not used to this. Let's not take a chance. And he says, if you get your body used to that, the orthokinetic reflex will, will quiet down and allow you to lift. There's an inner mechanism, the safety mechanism in the human body. So he says to bypass that, we do heavy weights uh, once a week to, to, um, to numb that reflex. So, but the majority of the work is done with light and, uh, sorry, lighter and fast, 75%, let's say. What do you think of like Pavel Tatsalini's uh, principles, like I, strong first principles of the, like say if you can do 10 reps of something, you don't do 10, you do five. That's exactly right. Hundred percent. I've read all of uh, Tatsulin's uh, works, almost all of them. He, he's a brilliant trainer. I agree with that hundred percent. Outside of competition, let's explain it to people. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, let me. Uh, okay. So let's say, for instance, let's say you know I'm, I'm a big believer in never being sore. You should train, and the next day you should wake up feeling good. Okay. Now why? How's that possible? Well, because look, if if okay, that's a great. That's a great example. Let's say um, 
Let's say your energy levels. We're seven. talking about fit people, by the way, right? Every, I mean, every, every human being. Every so, guys never worked e- out before. Even your first day, first day, never. How trained. is it possible to work Beautiful. out and not be sore? No problem. Beautiful. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, let's say there's something called rate of perceived exertion. Okay, so let's say I make you do pull-ups, and let's say the maximum amount of pull-ups you can do, the maximum amount of pull-ups is ten. Let's keep a nice round number. At eleven, you couldn't do eleven. If I put a point at a gun at you, you couldn't do eleven. Should I make you do 10 pull-ups on our workout? No. I'm going to make you do five. Why? Because I'm setting you up to work the next day. The next day we're going to do five. And the next day we're going to do another five. And then we're going to do six. When six is really easy, we're going to do seven. Why? If you count, if, the, if you did 10 pull-ups on Monday, you're going to be sore till Thursday. Let's say it's really your max. So Thursday, you've only done 10 pull-ups. From Monday to Thursday, you've only done 10 pull-ups. Me, I've been doing five pull-ups every day. So I'm at 20 pull-ups already, 25 pull-ups. Mm. I have more volume than you. Uh, now, if you add up at the end of the year, who trained more? I've trained way more than you. So let's say I go to jiu-jitsu practice. I'm doing jiu-jitsu every single day, three rounds, five days a week. That's 15 rounds. You go in twice a week, but you kill yourself. You do five rounds each day. You, kill, you push yourself those last two rounds and you burn yourself out. I still did 15. You're at 10. At the end of the year, I've done countless rounds. More, I mean, I've had so much more training than you. So how much training can we pack in in the week? That's the real question. How much volume can you expose your athlete to? So I always tell people, look, energy, uh, sorry, exercise can produce energy. So let's say I'm feeling like a seven out of 10. 10 being I'm really like energized. One, I was like really lethargic, feeling like I need to lay down. And seven, I'm feeling good, okay? If I get up and I do a right amount of exercise, the right amount, I can feel like an 8.5, Exercise can give me a tonic effect, like drinking this coffee. So let's say I just do some jumping jacks. I hit the back for a couple of rounds. I'm feeling good. Once you get that high, shut it down. Don't go into the phase where your body's beat up, tight, broken up. Don't redline the body. That's only for training camps for a, for a small period of time. Why? Because you get a little bit more from the system. But in the long run, you get less. In the long run, you've taxed the system. So if you do that regularly, by the time you actually get good, you'll be broken up. Mm. That's why I do a lot of flow training. Have you ever have you ever heard of uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's uh, uh, flow? No. Okay, so can you can you Jamie can you look up a flow chart? It'll be so much simpler. Like just put in flow, uh, flow in the workplace or flow chart. This is such this is pure genius. This guy is a pure genius. Basically, he went and he uh, he coined the term flow. So like when you're in a state of flow, we've all been in a state of flow. The number one um, uh, way to know that you're in a state of flow is time fl- flies by. I'm sure sometimes you've done podcasts and you're like, whoa, it's three hours already? Yeah. It was, it was a great podcast. You know, the one where you have the worst guest or you're, you're having the worst workout, it feels like every minute is an hour. That's, yeah. a, that's a bad, you're not in a state of flow. And a state of flow is you're having the right amount of difficulty, but it's not so difficult that you go into stress and it's not so easy that you're bored. It's the right amount of challenge. So let's say it, as simple as playing a, like Tetris. If I, put you on a, if I put you on a level that's too high, you're gonna be like, you're gonna play for five minutes and you'll be like, I'm done. If I put you on a level too easy, you're going to be like, this is boring. If I put you at the right amount of level, you see that's the flow channel. So if the challenge is too high, you'll meet anxiety. If it's too low, you're boredom. When I go in the practice room, I'm trying to create flow. I'm having fun. Training should be addictive. Imagine training was addictive. Everybody would train, everybody would be fit. But people always go into anxiety. They go and they kill, they slam their body. Then I have to convince you to do it again three days later, two days later. And you're like, dude, the mental energy is going to take me to get there. Like, 
it shouldn't be, it should be, training should be a pulling force. It should be pulling you. You want to go training. If you don't want to go training, it's not fun. If it's not fun, you're not going to do a lot of it. Mm. And if you're not going to do a lot of it, you're never going to reach mastery. So how do I make it pleasurable? How to make it fun? I have to be in a flow state. And you can get into a flow state in almost anything. But when you're out of that flow state, cut it. We're going to get further. We're going to do more training if we cut it today and come back in tomorrow. Because I'm a big believer in consistency over intensity. Intensity should be done one in a, once in a while. Because by nature, intensity can only be done once in a while. If you're going hard every day, you're not really going hard every day. You can't go your max every day. There's a, there's a, there's a cost to going to your max. Can you sprint every single day? You cannot sprint every single day. It's ludicrous. You can sprint once or twice a week. The best sprinters in the world, they sprint once or twice a week. Nobody sprints every day. Because intensity, by nature, entails that you need to take a break. Because if you don't need to take a break, you didn't really go to your maximum intensity. If you lift your maximum lift, the maximum amount of reps, you can, the, the maximum weight you can lift. If you do two reps, that wasn't your max. Because if it was, you wouldn't have, have a second rep in you. Mm. You understand? Right. I would have to give you a break for you to have a second rep. So we didn't find your true max, right? Intensity, maximum effort entails you have to stop because it's the maximum. There was no more reserves. There are no more reserves. So what do you think about people that, that say there's no such thing as overtraining? Here's the, the John Denner narrative. And I don't, I, 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 he, he coins it really, really well. He says, look, it's under rest. So he says, look, you can overtrain if you didn't give your body the rest later. Yeah. But he says, look, no matter how hard I push in practice, if I didn't kill myself, I can rest from it and recover and have super compensation. I agree with that. Some guys have made great strides with just mental fortitude and mental strength overtraining the shit out of themselves. Okay, but can I ask you this? Yes. They were successful, yeah? Yeah, okay. but their bodies break down. Right. But could they, could, could they have been better Possibly. if they used flow? Exactly. Right. As but good as they were. Like Dan Gable, for exa right. example. Like that, what Dan Gable essentially was done in his 20s, right? In terms of like his body's broken right. down. Exactly. Knee replacements, hip replacements, th that kind of deal. Let me ask you this. Who wins more often, Russians or American wrestlers? Russians. Every time an American wrestler wins, he's like some prod prodigy. Mm -hmm. he's rare, it's rare, it does happen, but it's rarely he's a technical master. Right. However, you have these Russian guys that win gold medals. You've never heard of them, and they're like Michael Jordans of the, of the sport. Yeah. There's just so many of them. They train long, consistent practices, whereas in America, we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday hard. We kill it, and then you rest Tuesday, Thursday. The Eastern Bloc had a totally different understanding. They're like, it's volume, 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 near the fight, short and intense, only near the, the competition phase. But before that, it's the maximum amount of volume you can... Imagine me and you are, are, are we're two athletes, A and B. You're A and B. You're training jiu-jitsu three times a week really, really hard. You're going all out. I'm training jiu-jitsu every single day. My average practice is two hours. Your average practice is two hours. But when you go in, you kill it. Like you, you, go, you go with all the black belts and you kill it. At the end of the year, I'm averaging three practices or two practices more than you. So I've had 100 practices more than you by the end of the year. 104 practices. Mm. Let's give two weeks for vacation. 100 practices more than you. 200 hours more than you I've been training. When we roll, your intensity that you put on the mat is going to be irrelevant. Why? Because I've also tasted that intensity periodically. It's not that much of a factor now. When you go super aggressive on me, when you attack me aggressively, I have felt that. I know how to deal with it. Plus, I have an extra 100 hours on you. 200 hours. So I'm going to mangle you. You know what I'm saying? Mm. The volume is far more important than the intensity. The intensity by nature is need, is need to be done periodically.
if you do it every day, it's not intensity. So how the Russians, how do they structure their training? They're more playful. You know, they kind of like, they kind of warm up, they kind of flow roll, they kind of like, they do a lot of technique, high emphasis on technique. Now, a lot of people hearing this are going to be like, well, the Russians also are funded by their government. You know, they, their government supports them a lot more than maybe an American uh, wrestler. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with that. There are many factors. However, we cannot deny that they're technically, uh, I hate to say the word superior, but they're technically more advanced, technically, when it comes to wrestling. They have a more of a flow understanding. They play around and it, and it, and and the practice gets more and more intense, more and more intense until you see them going really, really hard. They're going live, you know? They're going really, really rough. But they were playing. They have a more playful attitude. Look at the Cubans. You ever see Cubans uh, sparring? They're like 50 guys in a room. They're just touch sparring. There's no headgear. There's no mat on the floor. They're literally sparring on concrete. You think they're really trying to drop each other? They're on concrete. I mean, the Cubans are the top boxers. They consistently win gold medals. But in practice room, they're playful. Nobody gets hurt. Like you're saying, the ties. Mm-hmm. The ties are just, if, if you go in there and you, and you kick a tie really hard, he won't spar with you anymore. He'll be like, this guy's too, too amateur. Hmm. There's a time and place for intensity. I'm not anti-intensity. I think there's a time and place. Like Angelo Dundee was probably arguably the greatest boxing trainer in history. He says, look, fighting is for fight night. In practice, it's only practice. George Champier has that attitude, and I think that's why he's so good and so healthy today, you know, because he never hurts his sparring partners. People line up to want to spar with him. It's a joy to spar with him. Yeah, I, I love this idea, and I love this approach. I think that um, we, we have this attitude that you have to be tough. We mm-hmm. have this attitude that you have to work hard. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I've fallen prey to that many, many times mm-hmm. in my life, where you just got to be tougher. You got to work out harder. You got to push harder. But... When I read Pavel's stuff, one of the first things that struck me is like, well, yeah, of course, if you just do five reps every day mm-hmm. and then you won't be sore, you could do it more often. Mm-hmm. And then your body, like you get farmer strength. Like, exactly. Wh- where's farmer strength come from? Farmers exactly. aren't, they're not going to exhaustion. No. You know, they're not no. like throwing hail ba- bales, no. hay bales to the point where, you know, they literally, they're heaving they put their hands on knees and like, come on, five more. Exactly. <laughs> you should never be sore. Yeah. If you're sore, you overdid it. Whoa. Because I can't train the next day if I'm sore. Well, I, I open the wound. Every time I work out then. What's that? I said I've overdone it you every may time have. I worked out. You may have. <laughs> you may have. You got to. There's a lot of people listening to this right now. Going, Wait a minute. <laughs> what? what? How the fuck? Make your workouts a 7 out of 10 and do them every day. You're going to get far more training hours. You're going to spike your you're gonna spike your metabolism far more often. Mm-hmm. Your energy levels, your mood is going to be far more uh, uh, up. And and training is going to be more addictive. Now, what kind of training do you do at this stage? Like you're not competing, but you're constantly in there sparring with guys who are professionals and you're constantly right. training them. Like what kind of stuff do you do? Um, I do jiu-jitsu, wrestling, Muay Thai, and a small amount of conditioning after practice. I'll do, I, I, I'm too bored. I find jumping hurdles and, and throwing, like doing weights and stuff. Me personally, I don't find that as enjoy, I, I don't have to take that much enjoyment of it. I can do five to 20 minutes in a practice. Isn't that because sparring is just so fun? It's so much fun. I'm yeah. in a flow state. We're having fun. You know, right. we're wrestling. We're, yeah. I, I think conditioning, you can't get away with it. You need it. You need it. And, and I, we've got to talk about what George was saying on your podcast, that he doesn't do strength and conditioning. There's, there's a language issue there. There's a okay. language issue. And we've we, we got to talk about that because okay. we've done tremendous amounts of strength and conditioning, me and George. Like tremendous, like b- barrels full. Okay. And, uh, but he has a different definition. He, there's a misunderstanding. Okay. So okay. I really want to clarify that. But, me personally, like, look, if we roll for an hour, for me, it passes like this. Because it's so fun. It's so fun. We're having a good time. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. Like, oh, you grabbed like this. Like, I'm always learning new things. Right. Um, 
to do swing a kettlebell, to do push-ups, pull-ups, I can only do that for a fine amount of time. So I'll put a timer, three rounds, two minutes, and I'm doing it. And I bite the bullet and I do it. It keeps me healthy. But I don't go and practice to just do that. That I never do. It's always after my workout, after I do jiu-jitsu. So after you never have a day where you say, today I'm going to do Olympic lifting. No, I don't think Muhammad Ali ever did that. Muhammad Ali never, he, he boxed and then he did his conditioning. Mayweather does his conditioning, then he boxes. It always came together. Why? When I go to the gym, I'm going to go to have fun. I'm going to go wrestle. I'm going to go box. I'm going to have a blast. Then I'm going to grab the kettlebell. I'm going to do a few presses. I'm going to do a few Turkish get-ups and I'm done. Mm. Because I need to have some general fitness. You have general fitness, then you have specific fitness. Specific fitness is to get better at my sport. General fitness is to keep me healthy, strong, and allow me to reach new levels of athleticism that later, in the long term, can translate to my sport, later. But if you just do your sport, in my opinion, your system's gonna break down. Your back's gonna break down, your knee's gonna break down, your shoulder's gonna break down. You need to stimulate certain muscles that are not uh, getting stimulation in your specific sport. Hmm. You create atrophy in certain muscles because you're not using them really. Right. I need to work my stabilizers. I need to swing the kettlebell. I need to squat. I need to do certain exercises. Like what are the what are the standard cores? Kettlebells uh, for is that like triple your main... extension is number one. So any type of squatting maneuver, I don't particularly use the squat. I like to triple use triple extension. Triple extension. So your knee, hip, and ankle are bending. Okay. So like a squat, mm -hmm. your knee, hip, and ankle are bending. I like to jump. I like to throw the med ball a lot against the wall. I like to do uh, hurdles. I like to do box jumps. I like to uh, very low impact plyometrics. I like sprinting. Sprinting is huge. You ever do the beep test? What's that? Oh, you, you got you got the space for the beep test here. You got to implement beep what test. Is it? It's the best way to do cardio. Really? You ever hear the, the soccer players use it a lot? It's a beep, right? You run, you beep, and then it beeps back. And the faster the beeps go, the faster you have to run. Ah. That's really amazing. Because what I do is I set a timer for five minutes. I put it on a high pace. Like I'll put it at 10 or 11. And I'll just shuttle back and forth. And it keeps it tells you how fast to run, the beep test. And some days I'll get, I feel really good. I'll do 11. Because I know how fast I have to run to keep up with the beats. And that just... It's amazing for cardio. It's short, sweet, painless, and it's it's very uh, it translates very well to sports. Do you do Tabatas? Do you ever do Tabata? Tabatas are those? good. Yeah, yeah. I think Tabatas are good if they're done well. They're they're good. But again, you have to do it in a way it doesn't create soreness because Tabata can create soreness. You have to be very. Like, I wouldn't do Tabata kettlebell swing. That'll that'll cook my my hamstrings. I'll probably do like hurdle jump. Like you take a small hurdle and you just hurdle over it for, for twenty seconds. Now, what you're saying, though, like, there's got to be a bunch of CrossFit people out there right now that are screaming into their phones. They're wrong. All due respect. <laughs> they're wrong. I like how you say all they're due wrong. respect. With all due respect, they're wrong. Now, let me tell you why. Okay. And, and, and look, if you like CrossFit, do it. Whatever motivates you, do it. Okay. CrossFit's problem is it's fatigue-seeking. Yes. It says, look, go out there and burn yourself out. Yeah. That's totally wrong. They're not building any skill. Try to Show me a guy who's a champion in CrossFit, champion in Jiu-Jitsu. That guy would need two lifetimes to, re to reach mastery in both of those. Why? Because my CrossFit workout is going to tax me so much. I cannot learn armbar, sweep, triangle, choke, double leg, takedown, underhook. I'm, my, I've taxed my whole system. My system is in recovery. When your system is in recovery, what can you do but rest? You understand? Mm -hmm. Okay, Hafa Mendez. Do you think Hafa Mendez, one of the, arguably the greatest pound for pound, one of the greatest pound for pound jiu-jitsu guys in the world, do you think he's got a great... Uh, uh, CrossFit workout that he's really mastered, he's really good at. Do you think he has a great back squat? Do you think he's a great deadlifter? It doesn't look like it. No, he doesn't. Believe me. You think you think uh, uh, Gordon Ryan? He, he's a great uh, Olympic lifter. No, they they they're they're always going to be at an amateur level in that in the fitness world. Why? Because if they were experts, they would have taken so much from their jujitsu. Mm. Like look at George. He does gymnastics. Okay, and I'm the one who I twisted his arm a little to put him in gymnastics. Why? 
uh, because I thought it would it would give them tremendous benefit because uh, of uh, the amount of first of all they use a lot of body weight so it doesn't cost us anything neurologically. Body weight exercises are very easy to recover from. Body weight exercises are very easy on the nervous system. They use leverage instead of weights. Plus, the stabilizer strength is unbelievable. So, and of course, I wanted coordination. I felt George was a little bit stiff, mechanical. And the tumbling makes you more uh, fluid. I, I, think I, I thought I would create more efficiency this way. So we get him there, and there's, there's difficulties, okay, from A to F. We're still at A and B, and he'll always be at A and B. Maybe he'll touch C in his career, but he'll never get to F. You'd have to start really young, and you'd have to do it full time. You know, imagine somebody trying to get good at jiu-jitsu doing it part-time. He'll never get good. He'll, he'll be so-so. He'll reach a, a, such a level. CrossFit is too fatigue-seeking for an MMA fighter. Now, if CrossFitters followed, uh, if, they, if they just followed that 70% rule, they could, and periodically went to their max, periodically, as opposed to every single workout, go totally out. I bet you their top, top guys don't go all out every day. I bet you if, you if you watch what their top guys do, they taper off the workout. They make the workout between 70 and 85% of their true max, and they work volume. And then closer to competition, they go higher in intensity. I guarantee you that's what the best CrossFitters do. There's no way that the guy who goes balls out every day is going to add up as much workout and as much training time as the guy who's going 70 to 85% of his max. There's just mm. no way. But when they do those classes, like say if they do a CrossFit class, and right. I'm speaking out of ignorance, honestly, because I only watch them on video. I've never done a CrossFit right. class. But it seems to me they're competing against each other. Yeah, they're going all out, trying to yeah. set up PR. Yeah. Every class. Yeah. It's ridiculous. All due respect. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But why is it so popular? Because people think that's right. Because why? Because when you watch a prime time or a, or a fight, the guy's at the peak. He's he's going at the, he's at a point in his in his in his training camp where he's at the high end of intensity. So people are always watching the last part of your camp, mm -hmm. the part where you're peaking, and then you're going to go taper off for 10, 15 days. They don't see that part, and they don't see the months before where you ramped up to that level. They just see the last two, three weeks where it's the last few sparrings, and we're mimicking fight speed to the maximum as we can. Yeah. We're flirting with danger here. We're only doing it a little bit, but that's the part everybody's watching. So they think, oh, if you want to become really good, you have to flirt with danger every day. You have, that's what their workouts are. If you see George train throughout the year, you'd be like, hey, that wasn't so intense. That wasn't so intense. There's another really mellow practice. I remember when I was younger, I was training at the Grand Brothers gym and I would see Otis Grant. You know, he's a world champion boxer. He's, everybody knew him in Canada. Like, he's the man. And he was training really relaxed. I was like, dude, I'm training harder than him. But he's the, that's his millionth workout. It was my 10th, you know? Mm -hmm. He's doing in the long run. He's added way more years of training. So that's when I started to understand that the champion, the best guy, he's training for the long run. It's far more intelligent. He's getting far more workouts in than me that's burned out, and the next day I need a rest. Right, yeah. So it's, it's consistency over intensity. Intensity entails you need to take a break. There's just no way around it. So if you're a young person listening to this and you've got a coach that's trying to burn you out every day, the fuck do you do? Um, I don't if know. The coach, if you go into, <laughs> go into the gym and go, you know what? I was listening to Frost a hobby the other day, and Frost is saying you're a retard. <laughs> <laughs> here's my here's my uh, you know when I roll with guys, I think they feel when I grab them, I'm grabbing them gently, and they realize it. Mm -hmm. And I let them like I let guys pass my guard. Like I just go ahead, start set control, and I'll just get they'll get the message that we're just kind of playing around. Right, and then later when we're going more intense, you know, they'll feel it. They'll feel the intensity, but I don't always roll hard. 
Like, uh, if you see me rolling, like, I usually will roll with blue belts and purple belts. Why? Because I need to warm up. I need three, four rounds of warm up. Right. I don't want to even have a tight shoulder or tight hamstring. Of course. Uh, uh, for, I don't want anything tight. Of course. So I warm up with them really good. When I'm really warm, then I go in and I wrestle. I like to go rest. I like stand up. Okay, who wants to wrestle now? Let's go. Because I'm really warm now. I can wrestle. I can hit the ground. Right, but you're in a position where you can sort of determine and dictate yeah. what kind of exercises you do. Right. But if you're, the question was like, if you're a young person and you're entering into an MMA gym and the instructor, those to be kind, is a meathead, yeah. right? Which there's a lot of them out there. There is. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Ooh, what do a, you do? Uh, you might have to take a few beatings as a white belt. You might. Like, I, I mean, I grinded my gears when I was younger, but as you get older and more skilled, now you can take the VIP lane. You know, mm. now's the time. You've got the skill and you've got the knowledge. You but early those? on, you have less miles on you, so you'll survive more, more of a beating. You ever see those? There's a lot of uh, jujitsu classes where they go through an extremely rigorous conditioning routine before mm. they ever do any training. Mm. And I've always disagreed with that. I agree. Uh, uh, totally right. Yeah, I feel Sh like... Show me gotta, one world champion that did it that way. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's possible that they did. Who? I don't know. I don't know who did what. I've trained with a lot of the greatest uh, jiu-jitsu guys in the world. And they're all warm up with technique. Yeah. All of them. You think Ryan Hall gets up and does his burpees before practice? You think he goes and he runs five miles? He does weights? Well, he I know that like a lot of the old school guys, they were they were into that. Like, uh, Isn't Half Gracie famous for his uh, those conditioning drills they do? I don't know, but he never won like a... You know, I mean, he, he was in a time and place where very few people knew jujitsu. Right. Now we're in, we're the the secrets out. Who are the top guys? What are they doing? Yeah, I feel like there's also a thing where people want to be really tired from a workout, mm -hmm, so they mm -hmm. feel like you you they're getting a great workout, and mm -hmm. if you beat them down, mm -hmm. yeah, I agree with that. There's 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 a there's a disconnect. Right? There's like I want to feel pain. Punish me. Yeah, you're you're retarding growth though. Yeah, you know, like people don't like that word retard anymore, <laughs> but because you know they think you're talking about someone with a disease. But the the real term of being of retarding, mm. you're you're slowing down mm -hmm. growth, and that's really what retarded action is. Like you're you you have an issue in that the way you're approaching things is uniquely damaging to your ultimate goal of progress. I agree. I but agree. it's so common. Someone Ooh. right now is listening to uh, thousands <laughs> blow, it's of people his mind. It's that, his mind. that are going to class and they know mm -hmm. that they're going to have mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. all these crazy burpees and mm. all this crazy shit before class. It's so fucking common. Icarus, you fly too close to the sun, what happens to you? You get burned, and baby. And you drown. <laughs> this is stay in the middle. <laughs> Stay in the middle. So if you're going to do those conditioning exercises, kind of half-ass them? Half-ass them a bit. Yeah. I give you permission. That's why I like to do, I like to do my conditioning after. Mm, yeah. Because my body's warm. Too. And I don't need... Because the thing is, look, when you do conditioning before, you weaken your stabilizers. The prime mover, the, the, mu the muscles in your body that are prime movers have more endurance than your stabilizers. So if you weaken the stabilizers, your joint is less stable while you're rolling. Yes. The, the element of fatigue can put your joints in danger. That's why I only do, uh, because when you're, when, you're, when you're doing exercises, you're in control. You're not in a live role with somebody trying to tug on your arm. Right. So I need maximum strength when somebody's trying to tug on my arm in case I'm in a bad position. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I have my strength levels are there to protect my joints. Joint, prote joint protection is huge. You need to make sure your joints are healthy. It's huge. What, what, what kind of exercises do you do to make sure your joints are protected? Well, I do uh, the supple leopard. I do a lot of mobility work. And I do low impact 
plyometrics, low impact. So for instance, that's why I like the med ball, throwing the med ball against the wall. I like to do steps, you know, like you have a block, like mm -hmm. a 12-inch block, and like to jump, like do steps over uh, back and forth. So you kind of jump up in the air, but you never leave the ground because the block is also high. Mm -hmm. So you never get the negative contraction. You never get the impact of hitting the ground. And I like sprinting. I like clock. So explain that. How, how do you not getting the negative impact? So let's say, for instance, there's this is a block. Okay? Mm -hmm. okay. And this is my feet right here. Right. So I'm like this. I'll jump. Okay, so I'll, I'll jump. Okay, so you touch the block. I'm touching the block. So I'm never, when I, when I jump off the ground, I'm landing on the block. Mm. I'm jumping, so I'm always, I'm stepping down, jumping up. Stepping down, jumping up. I see. So I'm always exploding up, but landing on the block softly. Because mm. it's, it's, when you jump up, it's the landing that kills your joints. Mm. If I put up a 50-inch box and I make you jump up, the, the, the landing's going to be very soft. If I tell you jump over a hurdle, now you're in midair and you're crashing down towards the ground and you land... You right. gotta absorb that shock, but that's why I like like hill sprints. Hill sprints are great because your foot never leaves the ground, even yeah. though you're exploding upwards. The the ground is is coming up mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. So it's a very soft landing. The soft landing is key. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. But what about hitting a bag then? It's the best. Cardio is the best. I do a lot of Dutch drill for cardio. Dutch drills, what's Dutch that? Drill. Left hook, right kick, right hand, left kick, three just, minutes. Just ba ba bum, yeah. ba ba bum, ba ba bum. Sometimes I do a three-punch combo, two-punch combo, and I finish with a kick or a double kick, and I just spike my heart rate. That way I'm developing my skill, developing my cardio. I get very lean when I do that, and I uh, feel great. I feel my energy levels are up. It's, like, it's better than doing bike or running, personally, because I'm developing my skill, and I'm also spiking my heart rate. A Dutch drill can be very intense on the heart rate. It's low impact, and it's a plyometric. It's everything I need. Yeah, do you, what, what weight heavy bag do you use? I use the Fairtex, the giant pole bag, they call it. Like a big, big giant bag. It touches the ground, so when I kick it, it doesn't move. Oh, that's heavy as fuck. Yeah. That's like a 300-pound yeah. bag, right? Yeah. Why do you like that one? Because when I kick it, the bag doesn't swing, so doesn't, I don't have to reset. Oh. So I can keep that pace really high. So I'm going pop, 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 pop. Pop, 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 and are pop. you hitting it full blast, or are you just sort um, of? As I get warmed up, I hit harder and harder till I'm full blast. Wow. So I might start really relaxed, kicking low to the leg. Then as the workout gets warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter, I'm sweating. I start kicking to the head. Mm. Everything is gradual warm up, you know. And when I've had enough, I stop. Like I'm not gonna make myself sick because I'm working out tomorrow again. Right. Now, what about uh, stretching? Stretching I like, but I prefer mobility. So mobility is the element of stretching your muscle, but also creating motion. The joint has to be uh, in, in a type of rotation in or out. Why? Because you're creating synovial fluid to the joint. The joint is really more important to me than the muscle because the muscle rejuvenates itself. The joint doesn't. It, it does at a lesser degree. So I got to always be oiling up the joints. This is very important to me. Very important. Now, when you say like mobility, like what do you do like for your hamstrings and things like that if you're trying to stretch them out and also do mobility? So let's say I stretch out my leg. I'll be just kind of Moving bending around. at the hip, in and out. Mm -hmm. I won't just leave it out there static. Uh, there has to be a type of motion. I see. It's very important because when I'm wrestling or I'm doing jiu-jitsu, my leg's out there and I'm creating motion. I have to move. I'm not just putting it out there. Right. There's always a type of movement because when I stretch my leg out to stop you from passing the guard, I'm going to be moving my body at the same time. So that's mobility. That's the difference between stretching and mobility. There is a stretch element to mobility, but in stretching, there's no mobility element. Now, what about yoga? I think yoga is good for uh, relaxation and range of motion. I think it's very good. I just don't personally have the time and energy for it because I'm always in the gym. So for me to find time for yoga, it's just a little bit difficult. But I think it does allow for a great range of motion 
and relaxation and centering. If you have the time in your schedule, it's good. I just personally, with three kids and, and my everything mm -hmm. that I do, I just I'm in the gym already too much. Right, right, right. Yeah, I just wonder, like for fighters, I mean, if I'm hearing more and more fighters incorporate yoga into the mm. training sessions to just try to create more balance and and also stability, mm -hmm. joint stability in particular, because you're holding these static mm -hmm, positions mm -hmm. for long periods of time. Balance mm -hmm. and and, and it's your, a brilliant art. Your core as well. Yeah, it's a brilliant art. If you can have the time and energy to do it, it's it's great. Now, what about nutrition? Nutrition is huge. What huge? What, how do you eat? Um, right now, I just finished Ramadan, so I've, I've been eating a lot of processed foods. I've had like Ramadan's like the like the time of the year where I gain a lot of weight because normally throughout the year I eat very little processed foods. I eat natural foods, mm -hmm. but during Ramadan because I have such a small window to eat to fit my calories in, and I'm very busy all year round. I'm I always I'm always have projects or not fights traveling. I eat processed foods, so when I eat processed foods, why, I, why processed foods? Because there's more calories in them. You know, if I gotta if I gotta get my if I'm gonna go the whole day after no water, no food. I need to have eaten a certain amount of, 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 of calories in the night. Mm. So if I eat whole, if I eat a salad and, and some fruits, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be at zero by the afternoon right. in a hot gym with a bunch of guys who need to drill and work and I'm sweating in the gym just standing there. I haven't even started yet. I'm sweating. I got to hold pads. I got to wrestle this guy. This guy needs these positions. Like I'm I'm working and at zero. So I need that 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 density of foods that I get from. Uh, um, uh, processed foods, but I, I, I take a serious um, uh, loss in energy and, 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 and I, get, I, get, I gain weight for sure, no doubt about it. Wow. So, processed foods is the worst. I so for, for Ramadan, for the month, in the moment you wake up until the sun goes down, you can't have any food and any water. No, from sunrise. Sunrise. So you wake up before sunrise. Right. You eat. Oh, so okay. Most people do that. Like by, the, by, the middle, by the midway of Ramadan, I stop doing that because I just can't get up anymore. I just can't wake up. My body's a bit of a wreck. So, but from sunrise to sunset, you're not consuming anything. No, no water. food, no, no water. water. Wow. If you can have water, it would be easy. Like I know people who do water fast. Like I've done water fast. It's, it's quite easy. You have the energy, but when you cut the water, it, it's it's uh, it becomes a problem, especially if you're in a hot gym and, and you're just sweating standing there. Yeah. And now it's in the summer. Ramadan's in the summer. It's very humid in Canada and it's hot. Yeah. It's very hot. So I have to be very careful, and that's why at night, even just to resist eating processed foods, it's too difficult. Like, you got to eat. So do you have a specific calorie number that you try to hit? Uh, no, not really. Honestly, no. Like I what just, kind of foods are you eating when you say processed um, foods? Whatever my mom or wife is going to make. You know, I'm going to eat like a pasta. I'm going to eat like uh, I'm going to eat uh, bread. I'm going to eat uh, you know whatever whatever. I'm going to eat a dessert after. I'm going to have a cheesecake. Like I'm going to eat all the stuff I don't eat. Mm. You know, I'm going to eat all the stuff I never eat. Wow. I'll make myself an omelet, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just. But so you with, just crush it at night. I crush it at night. I crush it at night. But I pay the price after, you know, after Ramadan, I got to lose the weight. I got to get back in shape. I got to, you know. It's funny I gotta, because a lot of people would think that if you're not eating all day that you would lose weight. Yeah. Mo most people do Ramadan. They lose weight. Like everybody's <laughs> like, I lost weight. I lost weight. I'm like, oh, guys, I gained weight. Why? Because the thing is, I know what I'm doing the next day. It's going to be rough. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not just uh, working in an office. You know, I gotta, I gotta move. I gotta move right. my body. Yeah. So I pack the the calories in the, the night before. I hydrate, and then I go in the gym, and I try to make it like, you know, I'm like, I try to do my routine as usual. The hydrating part's got to be the most difficult. That's yeah. got to be exhausting. Yeah, it's tough. Some fighters have actually gone through training camps while they're. I know. Bilal well, Muhammad. Yeah, yeah. Muhammad Bilal. Yeah. Very dangerous, in my opinion, and risky. Well, he won. 
He won. God bless him, man. He's yeah, the man. crazy. I have one of my fighters now. He was doing Ramadan. I was telling him off. I was like, listen, you can't book a fight and do Ramadan. It's one or the other. You either do your Ramadan after the fight, but not during the camp because it's too risky. It's too dangerous. Right. And that's he was one literally of the things- sparring. He was literally sparring. I was like, dude, why you look so flat today? He's like, I got to confess to you. I'm like, what is it? I'm doing Ramadan. I said, dude, you either do Ramadan and cancel your fight or you book your fight and you do Ramadan after. The two is dangerous. It's not, the Ramadan is not about putting yourself in danger. Can you do Ramadan anytime you want? Um, if, it, if it interferes with your work, you can do it after when it's convenient. Okay, so you don't have to do it uniformly when everyone else is doing it. No, because it's, uh-huh. he, he has a fight booked. It's his career. That's how he puts food on the table. Okay. So you have an exception here. Okay, do your Ramadan after your fight. Like, for instance, Bektik, Mirza Bektik. He's doing his Ramadan after he just fought. Mm. He's doing it afterwards. Why? Because during the camp, I was like, look, you're either doing Ramadan right. or, and we're canceling the fight or you're going to take your, you know, you're gonna do your job and you do Ramadan after. And he was like, okay, I understand. That's the way it's done. You know? He looked fantastic. He did. Against yeah, he did Lopez. Good job. I mean, that's just, um, uh, Lamas. Lamas rather. Mm. Lamas is a, a very tough veteran. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. Ricardo's been around. He's, yep. he's fought the best of the best. He's, mm-hmm. he's fought for the title. And that was a really, really mm-hmm, professional mm-hmm performance by yeah him. ricardo came to win also i mean and he had that guy. creepy mustache too what's up with <laughs> bectic's creepy mustache <laughs> uh, i think he's young he's exploring his looks you know <laughs> experimenting with the creep, creepy mustache yeah he's such a good yeah. kid though he seems him. like a very very him. nice guy but yeah. i was just super impressed with the way he handled llamas because llamas mm-hmm. is he's i mean llamas is as well-rounded as you're gonna get mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. a wrestler he's got great striking great submission skills like pretty much does and he's seen so much mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. for him to win and win down the stretch like he was overwhelming him deep into the second mm-hmm. and the third i was like well this is a guy that's clearly hitting his stride and yeah. hitting the next level yeah he's, he did a great job now, when a guy like that is coming off of a fight like the darren elkins fight mm-hmm. how do you how do you build him back up after that fight well, you know what? I feel like he was trying to do too much and he wore himself out. And Elkins is one of those guys where if you give him a window, the fight's over. You know, he's, he's yeah. one of those, those guys who's dangerous. He knows what to do in the right, in the particular situation. He's not going to panic. And he found the right, right moment to beat uh, Mirzad. But I think just Mirzad overworked himself. And he didn't find pockets to... Because uh, the thing is, you cannot exert yourself at a maximum pace forever. You right. got to find pockets of recovery and get back to it. Yeah, I felt like he just uh, he overextended himself in the fight. Yeah, I feel like that was the case too. But it's how do you know when to? Ex- I mean, how do you know when to push? The idea is like you mm. want to break your opponent, right? So how do you know when you're breaking yourself? How do you know when your opponent has too much gas and you're mm. not going to like a guy like Elkins is famous for his durability mm-hmm, in his mm-hmm, heart. Mm-hmm. So he's mm-hmm. a, he's an interesting case. Yeah, I think I think the the master of that is George. George recovers in the round. We always talk about recovering in the round, and never showing the guy your maximum point. Like let's say we're fighting me and you, and I see you back off because you're tired. You're huffing a puff, and you. I know your breaking point now. I know that if I push this pace a little bit more, you're gonna break. There's no more reserves. However, if you get to about seventy percent of your fatigue, and then you start circling, and I, I see you're circling, but I don't see your fatigue. You're just doing that as a as a as a as a decoy. You're playing mind games with me, but really you're recovering. Mm. You're playing mind games with me. You're circling. You're tying me up in ways. You're bre- you know that I'm never gonna go over seventy percent. I'm never gonna redline in a fight. Only at the last bit of the fight am I gonna redline, because I have a reserve in case things go wrong. I have a reserve to explode out of a position that I might need. So the only times I will redline is if I'm ch- I'm in trouble in the fight. And I have to go all in because the fight's going to be over. Or it's the end of the fight. The guys who go all in in round one, for me, 
eventually they will lose because right. some guy's going to weather that storm, sidestep, and he's going he's gonna to put the kill on you when you're, when you're in recovery mode. Or like Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic. Right. Francis came out guns blazing exactly. in that first round, blew his wad, and exactly. then in the second and the third, exactly. Stipe took over. When you go for the kill, you're risking losing the decision or losing yeah. afterwards if you don't get the kill. If you overextend, if you go all in. Yeah. And there's no reserve. You better get that kill because if you don't. What's amazing is that when guys go all in in the first round, even if they're in great shape, sometimes they don't recover enough to complete the fight. Right. If the guy they're fighting is skilled enough to not allow them that. Yeah. You know, if you roll with a blue belt, you'll never get tired. He doesn't have the skill to make me work. Right. However, if I'm with a black belt and I get exhausted and now he's making me work. Right. I may never recover. Right, right. Yeah. That's a, it's, well, it's not just, it's also the way you go out. If you go out full clip in that first round, you, you have essentially sprinted yourself mm -hmm. into a position where you're just so diminished. There's so many fighters that are like that, right? Like mm -hmm. Connor is kind of a good example mm -hmm, of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Connor is fantastic in the beginning of a fight, right? But man, he gets to them third, fourth, and fifth rounds, and he takes like the Nate Diaz fight, the second fight. He, he becomes human. He turned and walked away from him. He I becomes mean, he, very human. He needed that break so badly. When you see that, do you think that that is a case of? And I don't want you to give away too much because you know George right. potentially wants to fight Connor. Right. 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 Do you think that that's a case of poor conditioning? Do you think that is a lack of experience in handling those moments because he's so used to overwhelming people and taking them out early? Mm. What do you think that is? I think it's uh, partly genetic. Really? Yes, because you see, he's, I, I call it the touch of death. You know, he's got that left hand. It's the touch mm -hmm. of death. Yeah. That touch of death comes at a cost. Okay, how do you have the touch of death? Where does power come from? Okay, well, if you look at Michael Kogan, what we were talking about earlier, he has a, he has a criteria for power. But to the best of his knowledge, this is where he believes power comes from. Okay, so I can't teach Hussein Bolt to be powerful. I can only make him faster. But where did that initial power come from? Number one on the list, number one, is where your muscle is attached to your bone. It's genetic. So Tyson hits a, he has a powerful left hook, not because his coach taught him how to hit a left hook. He could have hit a left hook like that if he had a mediocre trainer. It has to do with the, the leverage of his bones. So, for instance, uh, you know, if I'm going to imagine I have like a, like a, a really heavy pole that weighs 100 pounds and I want to stand it up. Well, depending on where I grab it, I'm going to have more resistance or less resistance. If I grab it near the end, I have more leverage. So where your muscles attached to your bone is going gonna, is gonna to dictate how much leverage you get out of it. Second most important element is the type of muscle fiber you have, the type. So if you have a fast twitch muscle fiber, you can hold less oxygen, but it can twitch faster, hence the name. So if you're a slow twitch muscle fiber guy, you can m metabolize more oxygen, but you can't twitch as fast. So there's a give and take. Nick Diaz. Exactly. So you have a guy, Nick Diaz, who needs to knock you out with volume. Yeah. He can't knock you out with one shot. Like look at BJ Penn. If round one, he doesn't knock you out, likelihood of knocking you out in round two is less. Right. Diaz is the opposite. The likelihood of him knocking you out in round three is higher than round one. Yeah. Because of the cumulative at attack. Yeah. McGregor, look at his stats. It's all round one knockout, round one knockout, round, round, round two knockout. He's fast twitch, high leverage, left hand. Yeah. If you take him into deep waters, his fast twitch muscle fibers cannot metabolize. Look at him with Mayweather. Mayweather's so smart. He let him work. He let McGregor work for three rounds. Yeah. And you're getting excited. Keep working. Keep working. And when you have nothing left, I'm going to put you out. 
You know, that was such a brilliant strategy. It was, and it was so obvious how much more efficient he was. Exactly. You know, and more relaxed. Connor had his moments mm. early in the fight where he, he hit him with some unorthodox punches mm -hmm. and some some weird mm. movement, but after a while, it was just... I found both of them had a brilliant performance, because what McGregor did to go in his world... Oh, incredible. It was brilliant. It was well, brilliant. Just crazy. Crazy mm. that that it even happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Really stop and think about it. It was almost like the world got a magic trick pulled It was on unbelievable. Them. I want yeah. George to fight Mayweather. I keep bothering George. You fight Mayweather. You fight him. He's like, it's crazy. I know it's crazy. But I bet Mayweather would do it. That's shit. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But George might have to lose a shitload of weight. Yeah, they'll find a catch weight. Do you think Mayweather is worried that he's going to get concussed? He's fought all the top punchers in the world. Right. He's just going to have to worry about George's volume and reach. But he can handle himself and George can handle himself. But the whole world is going to tune into that one. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm like George. You're selling it. Look yeah, you're man. I'm like George, it. do it, man. Do it. But George doesn't want to fight a smaller guy. He doesn't want to call out a smaller guy. So uh, it's going to have to come from Mayweather. It's going to have to wow. come from him. Wow. There's another big money fight. Yep. But is it a bi as big a money fight? That's the thing. The real big money fight is in somehow or another McGregor convincing the world that he could beat him in a second fight. Like, I know there Mayweather? Were yes. Oh, that, that's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. We bought that one already. Yeah. We we bought that one. <laughs> well, they need there was, George to fight McGregor. There was the one thing of doing it in the octagon and doing it with small gloves and no kicks. Remember, there was there was some talk of that, and people were like, well, where's this talk coming from? I don't know if it was legit or not. Mm. I called Dana. Dana said it's 100% bullshit. Yeah. But, I because mean, the state can't enforce that. So right. if McGregor wants to throw a kick, he'll throw a kick. Right. Mm. It'd have to be gentleman's rules. Do you remember when that happened with Tim Sylvia and Ray Mercer? No. Tim Sylvia fought Ray Mercer, and they had originally been scheduled oh. to fight a boxing match. Gentlemen's rules. But the commission said they wouldn't sanction the fight. Of course not. Because Tim Sylvia doesn't have any pro boxing experience. Ray Mercer, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Olympic gold medalist, mm -hmm, former mm -hmm. world champion. Mm -hmm. And they decided to have an MMA fight, mm -hmm. but they had a gentleman's agreement mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. not throw kicks. Tim opens up with an inside leg kick. Of course you he did. You ever see the fight? Yeah, I did. He Here he goes. Watch shot. this. I just he forgot about the off. kick. It starts off, and Tim Sylvia immediately. Oh, Ooh. this is go before this. Go before this because this is that's the KO. If you go before this, they open up, and Tim kicks him right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and look, Ray, see Ray puts his oh. hands down like you motherfucker. I can't believe this shit. Oh, that's why and he gave a look. Boom! And then he hits him when he's down. He's just KOs him. Let me see that one more time. Wow. Boom! I mean, come on, son. And that's like a fifty-year-old Ray Mercer at the time. Oh. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, he, that's why he gave that look. He was like, yeah. He couldn't believe it. He's like, I thought we weren't kicking, man. So they made a gentleman's agreement, and Tim Sylvia's like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> but he paid for that. Mm. I mean, he got starched. That was, that's, it's also the difference in skill level. You see a guy like Ray Mercer, who's seen all these patterns, mm. and a guy like Tim Sylvia is just so used to MMA fighter striking. Mm. It's a different different speed also it is how much does it help fighters to cross train in these different disciplines and how difficult is it to take those skills and then to put them into their overall mma game i think it's beneficial if you do it to a certain degree because if you go too much let's say you're always sparring with pro boxers there's a distance that's not realistic because in mma mm, you're further away from right. each other yeah so when i get to that distance the guy's gonna grab me however yeah. because there's more punches per second it's more of an intensive training. So if you can deal with that speed of training, then later when I put you in an MMA zone, it's slower a little bit. Mm. So there's that element. There's a balancing act. There's, there's boxing with pro boxers, but then there's doing it too much. 
that when you're sparring with an MMA fighter, it's harder to hit the MMA fighter than it is for me to hit the boxer. Right. Because we're in a different pattern. We're a different world. I want to do just a bit of that. Not too much. Is there Are there any patterns that people pick up in boxing that become a real problem when you add in elbows? Yeah. Yeah, when you duck down, some mm-hmm. guys just start, okay, you throw a right hand, I'm going to duck down. Dude, you do that once with me, I'm throwing a left kick right after my right hand. I'm throwing a shallow right hand, mm-hmm. and the left kick is coming upstairs. And when you slip, you're slipping right into the kick. John Jones, Daniel Cormier. Exactly. I mean, that was a, yeah. a pattern that John had seen, and they even talked about it mm-hmm. beforehand, mm-hmm. where Daniel said, don't think you're going to hit me with that left high kick, mm. which is kind of crazy mm. when you see how it went down. Mm. Yeah. That's a weird thing when people just develop a sort of pattern that they just keep repeating over and over again. And then it's instinctual. Mm-hmm. You want to take it out now. Oof, good luck. Good luck taking it out. Isn't that, that's one of the things that when um, you see people learning technique, one of the more difficult things is to relearn something. Once you learn it one way, mm. like with uh, kicking in particular, mm-hmm. when they get tired or when they get nervous, mm-hmm. they revert back to their old way mm-hmm. of kicking and mm-hmm. you, you see it. Especially if they learned it young. Yeah. It's hardwired. Yeah. How do you get a guy out of that? Uh, I haven't been very successful. Like, for instance, if I take a guy who's been kicking taekwondo his entire life and then I try to teach him a tight kick, it's not that easy. It's really difficult. Really? Yeah. That's why I believe when you're young, you have to have a diversity. You have to learn how to kick like a Thai, like a Taekwondo guy, like a karate guy, like a kickboxer, mm-hmm. the variety. And then you can go in, out there and you can morph your style. You can ch- exchange from one style of kicking to another. Mm. However, if you've done 10 years of one way and you were hardwired that way, it's very difficult, almost not worth it to redo it. Just let him kick the way he kicks. Really? Yeah. It's not worth it. Not worth it. No, because you're going to train him for, for so many hours, and then he's going to go in there, he's going to revert back. Like you said, when he's under the pressure and the stress, he's going to revert back to what he normally does. When he's a little bit tired, because it's more efficient for him. Mm. So you're asking him now to do something new. Is there any way to rewire a person's brain? N- not that I know of. Not, not in that. Not, of course, you can, you can change someone's behavior, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But if it's hardwired from a young age, uh, we're talking about it's a long-term project. Do you have yeah. the amount of time? You could do it, but it's a lot of time and energy. And it's painful. It's painful to undo an old way. Yeah. It's a lot of energy. The guy will feel tired. The guy will feel sluggish. The guy will feel uncomfortable because he's doing something inefficient. You, you see those patterns, though, where, where you watch a guy fight and you go, man, why does he always do that? He's always throwing these wide, looping punches. Like, why can't he throw efficient mm-hmm. Smooth mm-hmm. technical punches. He might have learned. I've I've had that problem. They learned it wrong early on in their career. Then when they get to you, they're good enough to get to you. They're good enough to you know come near the UFC. Now they they want that next level, and you're working with this new athlete who has so many inefficiencies. You got to remove them one by one gently. If you try to rehaul him, you just confuse him. Yeah. Like he just doesn't know what to do anymore. What, what do you want me to do, coach? Like I'm totally lost. It's it's like a it's like a scientific experiment, right? You isolate one variable. If you change too many things, we don't know what caused what anymore. And you're in, you're in a chaotic now. You're, now you're in a world of chaos. Yeah. He doesn't know what works anymore. You don't know what's wrong anymore. And we're, one thing at a time. We don't want to flood you and we don't want to bottleneck you. Well, we're taking you from one place to another, one step at a time, gently. And you have to ask yourself, what's the one thing I can help this guy with? The one thing. They, they'll change the rest of the system. This is the most important thing. And let's do that one thing at a time. So when you see a guy and say like he's got a Kyokushin background or something like that and you see he throws kicks but he keeps landing with the instep, mm-hmm. you just let him keep doing it like that? Um, yeah. It wow. depends how many years he has and how much time we have before the next fight. Because I believe it can work. It works. The, the reason why karate is still here is because it worked. Right. Guys won. 
Right. You know, it's, it exists. Karate is not a, it's not a bad spot. It works. If you can make it work. Mm -hmm. I might teach a karate guy some boxing. And then his karate will f shine even more because he can box. Right. Yeah. That does seem to be the problem is when, I mean, um, Taekwondo guys in particular, mm -hmm. uh, they don't punch to the face. So when they get into sparring situations and they're first learning how to do it, we saw that with Raymond Daniels early in his career as well. They just have the hardest time with hands. Mm. So do yeah. you take a guy like that and just have him only box? or I would make him box a lot and that'll open up his kicks even more. Mm. Definitely, no doubt about it. Especially with his reach and his his uh, his distance, his footwork that he has, he could look. Uh, he could do a lot more. I think. Do you write all this stuff down, like your thoughts on these things? I know you do your YouTube series, and yeah. you have. But have you ever considered putting out a book on your ideas um, about MMA? I'm writing a book, but it's more uh -huh. of a, it's more of a philosophy book. Oh. Because I have a background in philosophy, I have a degree in philosophy, so I, I spend a lot of time just contemplating things. So I, I do a lot of. Fight philosophy stuff. I write it down. Mm -hmm. Publish a book. Not really interested in that, to be honest with you. I, I'm more interested in, in going in philosophy, writing about philosophy, not so much MMA. Like philosophy, in uh, as more about truth, reality, uh, paradigms. You know how how we see the world. You know what what is truth? What is reality? Those kind of things. I know it sounds weird. That's coming from an MMA coach, but I do a lot of philosophy on my own in my own personal life. I don't think it's weird at all. I mean, I think that what you do is essentially your taking fighters and preparing them for one of the most difficult challenges in all of professional sports. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's a more difficult challenge it's, outside of war. Yeah, exactly. You know, or being a firefighter or a, or a police officer where you're actually putting your life in mm -hmm. danger. Mm -hmm. I think yep. combat sports are just, it's extremely difficult to do and to be able to do like what you've done with George and what George has done as well. I mean, what you guys have done together, it's just an incredible accomplishment. And Thank especially you. him coming back mm. after four years off mm. and looking better than he ever looked mm. in the past. That was what was crazy. When he came back and the fluidity of his combinations, the way he looked and the way he sunk that rear naked choke, that was a rare rear naked choke in MMA mm. where the blade of the hand was on the back of the neck and it was just fully sunk in. Mm. You know that that you know how you see guys get the choke, but you're seeing that mm -hmm. old school mm -hmm. Ken mm -hmm. Shamrock style mm -hmm. back. I'll of never that. tap to this. I'll never tap to this. You put me out. <laughs> if the hand's not behind, you'd rather get put put out. <laughs> it's funny. I was rolling with one of my students yesterday, and I let him take my like I was kind of toying with him. Uh. And I let him take my back, and I, he was stronger than I thought he was. Like, he, I haven't wrestled with him in 10 years. I just put out a YouTube video of me and him. If you guys want to put it up, it would be funny. But this is, we were rolling off camera, and I kind of let him take my back. You know, I never give up my back, but sometimes I, he's purple belt, so I was just kind of toying with him a little. And he put a choke in, and I was like, okay, let's see if he can finish. I, I didn't think he could finish it, but then all of a sudden, it got in deeper. And he didn't have the hand behind my head, so I was like, I'm not going to tap. No way I would tap to this. Impossible. First of all, he should know better. Okay, right. if I let him tap me with this, he's gonna think he did it right. So I was like, no. But I was like, Ugh. and then when he took a breather, I just took I just took his hand out because I could reach your hand, right? It's not tucked away behind. Just, yeah. And I got out. I'll never tap to this man, never. So he's doing this. Yeah, his hand is like here. Okay, the it top has to of, be the here. Top of the head. MMA it has to be gloves here. or uh... no, no, we're full full rolling. This is it, right? Yeah, he's a good purple belt. He's a tough guy, very good shape, strong, and the the the, the choke's not in this video. That was off camera, but I mean, I would never tap to this. Like even in practice, because it's not on. The choke is mm -hmm. not on. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's definitely a difference. But some guys have gotten it even in the UFC with just a gable grip. The guys, the guy doing... who, the guy who's being choked. Oh, with the gable grip works. Yeah, because I can't, I can't, I can't grab your hand. Mm, I see what you're saying. Like if your hand is here and I can grab it, 
why would I choke? Why, why, would I, why would I tap? I can hold your hand. I can grab onto it. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's funny that in the early days, that was how everyone did a real, na- real But the, it was choke. more panic. It's more panic. You're, you, okay, oxygen is lower and you're tapping, but you're not going to go out. People just didn't know any better. They thought exactly. that that was okay to do. Right. They thought that that palm in the back of the head was okay to do. I don't know who figured out to do this. No, the, the, so the palm behind better. the head is, is okay. I'm not against that. It's you're, when the hand the top is top of the head. When it's here. Right. It has to be head. unreachable. If I can reach it, I'm not tapping. Right. <laughs> I'm not tapping. Forget that. Why would it it's, it's it's an experience if you tap. It's like you, you panicked a bit. What's your feeling though on tapping? Because here's the thing about tapping. Like this I've had some injuries where like mm. fuck, I should have just tapped. Mm, and yeah. I got out of it and I kept rolling. Not worth it. And then my elbows fucked and not I can't do chin ups for a couple months. No, I tap quick. I don't tap to strangle holds easily. Except for guillotines, I feel like it torque my neck. Yeah. But a rear naked, there's no joint issue. So I won't tap. I'm as stubborn as the next guy. My joints, I tap right away. Mm. I, don't, I don't put any miles on my joints. That's I want to be smart. as good as I can be, as healthy as I can be. Because I want to roll till I'm, you know, like the week before I die, I want to be rolling the week before. <laughs> well, that's the, the ultimate goal that very few people ever achieve. Right. Almost every, I know so many jujitsu guys that are mm. so busted up. Mm-hmm. Like, Eddie Bravo has an artificial disc in his lower back. Yeah. Both of his shoulders are completely fucked, and he's trying to avoid surgery in his shoulders. And his knee, too, right? Because I was just yep. with him yep. in uh, Vegas. Yep. His and ACL, he had a, a tear in his ACL, and then he just got his knee operated on. He had a bucket handle tear, so he got his meniscus repaired. But his uh, his ACL was uh, at least partially torn, and he, he's letting it heal, but... I'm very skeptical about people that just let partial tail tears and ACLs heal because mm. I feel like yeah you let it heal but it healed with like sixty percent of its original strength mm. like you might have let it heal but right. how much did you actually do? There's a weakness. Do? Yeah, you know what they're doing now, which is really fascinating. Doctor Roddy McGee out of uh, Las Vegas, who does a lot of work with UFC fighters, he's uh, showing me that they're taking torn ACLs, completely torn, and instead of replacing it now with a cadaver graft or a patella tendon graft, they actually take that ligament and can reattach it. Really? And in three months, they had someone competing in the Olympics. Really? Yes. What's, what's really. his man's name? Dr. Roddy McGee. Wow. Yeah, cutting edge shit. In America, yep. here in the U.S. Yep, wow. latest and greatest. And they're doing it. It's a crazy operation. They're taking this broken ligament, and they obviously have to do it quick before it pulls back and, mm-hmm. and, and disintegrates. But when it gets to, they get the torrent, the tear in it, they reattach it and they, they sew the shit out of this thing. They've got like stitches in it and it's all weirdly bound up wow. and then it reattaches. It reattaches and actually grows. Impressive. And it's your original ligament as well. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, yeah, which is way something better. that your body can reject or something that you're, you know, you don't have to compromise your patella tendon. You know, I don't know how George had his done. Did he do the patella tendon graft? I feel like he did with at least hamstring? one of them. I think it did he do hamstring. I th- did he do hamstring? I can't remember. He didn't. He didn't take cadaver. He took his own. Did or he did... do it both ways, b- both times the same way? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, Matt uh, Matt Brown just did uh, hamstring. He just had mm. his done, and they they did a hamstring, and he said it's he feels pretty good already. He's, yeah, yeah. It's a scary injury. Oh. I've had both done. Really? Yeah, I've had uh, one with a patella tendon graft and one with a cadaver. The cadaver was much easier for me. Really? Yeah. It took? Yeah. I don't... See, the thing about it taking or not taking, the idea... What happens with a cadaver is people think that your your body takes it like an artificial heart. 
No, or like a you know a transplanted heart. It actually uses it as a scaffolding to reproliferate with your own cells. Mm. And I think part of the problem is it gives you the feeling that it's stronger than it is early on. You're like, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And you start, I mean, everybody wants to start rolling again. Everybody mm. wants to start training again. And so I think some guys just get in there a little bit too early and they do something and it pops and they go, oh, it didn't take. Well, is that mm. really the case or did you just put too much stress on it too early on? I thought the fear was it can reject, your body can reject it. I've heard of that, but I think that's extremely rare. Okay. I think what what's more common is that it, they say it doesn't take, mm. like that it didn't. But I think when I hear it from MMA guys, it's like, I know you're a meathead. I know you guys are savages. You get in there and you're training hard way earlier than you should be. And then it fucks up again. I mean, there, there's a bunch of guys that have gotten ACL surgery and then in the recovery process blew it out again. It happens really common. Mm. And then they're back to square one again. Right. It's all narratives. I mean, even the, even the I mean, to, to explain something, it's, it's really just, it's narratives. That's where our explanations are 99% of the time just narratives. And, and to weed out narratives and not use them is very difficult. Well, how so? Like, what do you mean by that? Um, I mean, there's a difference between logical arguments empirical observations and then there are narratives we tell ourselves why things are happening around us all the time and it's 99 of the time it's wrong but we believe it we tell ourselves that and to try to work around that is, is actually quite difficult mm. so like for instance uh when, when the field of philosophy you know if you give an argument if you give a deductive argument your argument has to conclude the conclusion has to have no other possibility there can be no other possibility all your premises have to be valid and sound and there can be no other possibility. When I say, hey, my ligament didn't take, there's a thousand, that's an explanation. Mm. It's one of many possible narratives. It's one of, it's, it's one of many, many possible explanations I can give why my, why my knee is injured now. Including so, that you didn't let it rest enough. Right, exactly. Let instance, recover let, let, let's say I, I'm walking and I trip over my shoelaces. I'm going to be like, I tripped over my shoelaces. That's why I fell. Well, you could have made, if your shoelaces were tied, maybe you tripped anyway. Maybe it was something else, right? You haven't, you haven't eliminated every other possibility. If you haven't eliminated every other possibility, it's just a narrative. Mm. It's not actual fact. The Tony Ferguson injury was the most fucked up one I've ever right. heard ever. Right. The week of the fight, right. doing press, trips right. on some cables, and rips his knee apart. For sure he had an injury before he's not aware of. You think so? There's, there's, there had to be a small rip a small tear a small weakness somewhere you know he can with he could withstand tripping on a wire uh, on, a, on a cable but i mean but it was he, hanging by a thread is that the case or did it did he just fall at a really fucked up angle i, I didn't see the fall yeah but i assume he's such an a, a, a athletic guy yeah. he could fall in a way he can catch himself falling in a way that you know is is athletic it, it, maybe he had a you know when you're sparring you hurt yourself you don't feel it Mm. So much is going on. Maybe he hurt himself when he cooled down. He didn't feel it. It's not. There's not many pain sensors there or whatnot. Again, this is just a narrative. Right. Then he goes in there. It's hanging by a thread. He tugs it. Boom. The whole thing breaks apart. You know. It, it, it's well. It's, it's a possibility. A, it's such a violent injury. If you see mm. how bad it was. Did you see the surgery photos? No. I, I saw. I saw actually well, a little bit. Yeah. Craziest photos I've ever seen. I mean, his. It's a fucking enormous scar. Wow. To have that kind of a scar in 2018 wow. with the surgery techniques they have today. It's very rare that you see someone who's just, I mean, it's, I'm, you're looking at like a 12-inch scar. Really? That I didn't yeah. see. I just saw him. Look he posted it. a, oh, my God. Wow. That's huge. 
It's incredible. I mean, that that is a giant scar. It goes well below his knee wow. to above the knee. And they opened him up. And what Ooh. is this? Is this pre surgery? What is that? So, oh, this is a different angle. Was it ACL? What was it? No, it's his MCL. Or is it PCL? Which one is it on the uh, outside? Outside is MCL. So his MCL was ripped completely really? off the bone. Wow. Yeah. Man. Wait, go to his uh, Twitter, his Instagram page now. Does he have um, any updates? Because a guy like that, you got to wonder, like, when is he That's going to That's the photo I saw. The one with the suction cups. The cupping. Yeah. Is that... Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, yeah. Because I was just having a conversation with someone. Who was it that just said cupping was bullshit? Who was that? I don't know if it was on here. I don't know. Was it? So I was having a conversation with someone. They were saying cupping is essentially almost total nonsense, but so many people do it, and it just mm. puts your mind that you're doing something and healing and doing something, uh, you know, addition, in addition to standard procedures to, that's, that's helping you out, but really ain't doing shit. Um, I would say, yeah, it's probably more psychological, <laughs> but everybody yeah. does it. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Super. It's psychological. You feel like you're taking care of yourself and it makes you feel good. It's psychosomatic. It's but fucking it's weird. A, because Go back up. Hold on. Go back up to that image, Jamie. Look, I mean, look, look at that. <laughs> that is fucking crazy looking. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, psychosomatic, uh, medicine can help you. But here's an insurance covers acupuncture treatment because it's effective. I was skeptical. The first time I tried it, but it was, yeah, see, I don't know. <laughs> you are a complete moron then. Even insurance covers acupuncture. Well, does acupuncture work? I have no idea. Never, never tested it. Never fucked with it? I've had it done to me. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Yeah. I you only know? had it done once and the guy yeah. was kind of a quack. Yeah. And I was like, all right, buddy. Yeah. He did, once they start talking about toxins... You know, we're cleansing you of toxins. <laughs> like, oh, again, see, that's a narrative. Yeah. It's possible, but it's not proven. Right, it's just a possible story you tell yourself. Yeah, but that term toxins, right, is so that that is like, there's certain things that people say where you know you're dealing with woo. Oh, this is some woo-woo bullshit here, and toxins is one of them. Cleansing and toxins. I'm going on a cleanse. <laughs> And I'm 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 getting the toxins out of my system. Dude, scientists are just as guilty as of woo as every other guy. You think so? Oh yeah, in big time. What, in what way? Oh my god, man! Like there's there's scientists, and then there's philosophers of science. Mm -hmm. There's so much woo woo in science. Even the most popular guys have woo woo. They just never studied the philosophy of science, so they don't really understand what they're saying per se. Like, give me an example of woo woo in I'll, science. I'll give you I'll give you a great example. Okay. Okay. Um, there's this guy named Isaac Newton. Okay. I heard of that dude. Yeah, and you're asking him, hey, Isaac, why don't I fall off the face of the earth? And he's going to be like, well, Joe, there's this gravity. There's this force of gravity pulling you down to the earth. The earth has a greater mass than you. Therefore, it's, there's this force pulling you down. We call it gravity. And then some guy comes around. His name is Zahabi. And he tells you, no, Joe, don't listen to that guy. I have another theory, way more, uh, it's truer than his. I believe there are gremlins pulling you down to the earth. They have lassos, these infinite long lassos. And every time you're falling off the earth, they pull you. Every time you jump up and down on the earth, they pull you back down to the earth. You don't see these gremlins, they're invisible, but that's what's pulling you down to the earth. Now, how do you know who's right and who's wrong? Who's telling you the truth, me or Isaac? Well, 
Isaac lived a long time ago before they actually had provable studies that could show you why gravity works. Name me one of those studies. Well, I'm not a scientist. Well, no. Sci- let me let me break it to you this way. No scientist has a study to prove us that gravity works. Really? That's that's the whole thing. That's that's what's scary about but they, how we uh, talk about the universe. But they us. understand that gravity is in relation to the size and mass of objects. So the moon is smaller, therefore it has one six Earth's gravity because it's one quarter the size of the Earth. Very There's true. a standard formula. They True. can follow. There's a correlation. Now, my my theory of gremlins, which obviously I don't believe in, right? I'm using <laughs> right. mythological okay. language to make it really simple. Don't somebody misquote me that right, I believe right, in. Right. You know. Frost Hobbit <laughs> believes in gremlins. <laughs> he doesn't believe in gravity. He's a gravity denier. Exactly. Well, I have. There's less. There's less mass on. There's less atoms. The moon has less atoms. Therefore, less gremlins. Less of them pulling you. Mm. My my gremlin theory correlates with the, the gravity theory exactly. But I'm using a myth- mythical language just to point out that every type of force we're talking about is an inference. It's something we project out there. We don't actually see gravity. And you know, later on, Einstein debunked gravity, right? When, well, when, what do you mean by he debunked, he debunked gravity? It. He, Isaac was totally wrong. Isaac, in what, in Isaac's way? explanation of why you don't fall off the earth was totally wrong. Well, what did Einstein do to debunk it? Einstein taught us that a new theory, a new hypothesis, that gravity is a pushing force, not a pulling force. See, Isaac Newton, he debunked Aristotle. Uh, first, we used to believe what Aristotle used to say. Aristotle used to say, look, this thing has a, a natural place. It has to be stuck to the earth. That's its natural place. It, the force is within that one thing. That's why it doesn't fall off the earth. So uh, uh, when Aristotle saw a bird fly, he said, look, it has levity. Its natural state is to be in the air. The force that it carries it up in the air, it's within it. It's within the bird itself. Mm. Isaac Newton came around and said, no, that's totally wrong. Nobody, no, no entity can move itself. It's only a force that's applied. So let's say you're walking. Isaac Newton would say, you're not pushing yourself forward. You're pushing the ground beneath you backwards. And that, the ground is pushing you forwards. So that every action is opposite equal reaction. Mm. So when I run, I'm really pushing the ground behind me. It sounds like, like he's splitting hairs, but he's saying something actually very profound. He's saying you're pushing the earth behind you, and the earth is pushing you forward. There's a reaction there. So what they do to, to illustrate that to kids is they take like a train track, they elevate it, and they turn on the train. And then you see the train track starting to spin underneath the train. And it's showing you, look, the train is pushing the train tracks back. And the train tracks are pushing the train forward. When they're, when they're connected to the ground, so when I put you on a treadmill, you're pushing the treadmill behind you. The treadmill's not pushing you forward because it's, it's spinning along with you. Mm-hmm. But if I put you on the ground, the ground is pushing you forward now. So for every action, there's an opposite equal reaction. I'm sure you've heard this. Mm-hmm. Then Einstein comes along and says, no, that's totally wrong. Well, he, uh, when it comes to gravity, okay, when in the subject of gravity, he says, because Isaac Newton says this, look, he says, look, the force of gravity is in the earth. The earth has this invisible force, this mm-hmm. magical woo-woo thing. And that's what, that's what his contemporaries said about him. That's what his peers said. He said, oh, you're, you're appealing to magic. What is this gravity thing? Where it's, non, it's non-corporeal. It's not material. It's not made of a substance. Is this magic? And he was like, yeah, it's this force. You can't feel it. You can't detect it. It's just observable in, the, in nature. And for 300 years, everybody believed that. And then Einstein comes along and says, no, you guys are totally wrong. There is no mythical force called gravity. It's a pushing force. So really what he says is, oh, sorry, let me, let me get a sheet of paper here. Make it really, really simple. And I'm going to, Put it in a nutshell here, okay? But okay. this is, he says, look, Einstein says, look, space and time are one. Space is actually a thing out there. 
It's actually a phys- the space between me and you is an actual physical thing. He says the sun is so heavy that it dents it. It makes a dent. It makes like a toilet bowl, and the earth is bumping around in that toilet bowl because space is actually curved. It's curved like this. Space mm-hmm. is curved because the sun. Imagine I put something a bowling ball on your bed. Your your, your bed's gonna indent. Right. That bowl. That toilet bowl shape. The the earth is flooring around that toilet bowl shape. So it's a pushing force, no longer a pulling force. So the weight of the earth is pushing down on space. Exactly. It's bending space, literally. Its mass is bending space. Now, Isaac Newton thought light travels in a straight line only. And to prove this, Einstein said, look, light will bend. If I'm right, light will bend. So they observed the sun during an eclipse, and they saw that the light bends. Light does not travel in a straight line. This is another um, uh, belief that was debunked. I mean, how many scientific beliefs are debunked? Countless. Or, or overturned because a scientific fact is not a mathematical fact. They're two different things. A scientific fact can never go higher than hypothesis. If somebody understands the philosophy of science, he understands that every single scientific fact is not equivalent to a mathematical fact. One plus one equals two. A scientific fact is always subject to cross-examination and new evidence. So have you ever heard of Thomas Kuhn? Mm-hmm. He's very famous for that, right? We have a paradigm. So during Aristotle's time, he had a paradigm. He thought the sun goes around the earth. It was an observational scientific fact. Every day he saw the sun go around the earth, literally. He said, look, guys, I'm using my senses to observe the sun go around the earth. And then one day we find out, no, that's an optical illusion. It's not true that the sun goes around the earth. It's the earth goes around the sun. Scientific, scientific revolution. Every scientific fact we have or theory including gravity, because gravity became the law of gravity. It was no longer the theory of gravity. It was so accepted, it became the law of gravity. Today, we don't, we don't understand gravity as Einstein understood it. Excuse me, as Isaac Newton understood it. We understand it completely backwards, literally backwards now. And that's true with every scientific theory, because science is always subject to new evidence coming to light. Right, but the difference between Isaac Newton living like when, whenever the fuck he lived was right. a long-ass time ago. 300 years ago. Versus the science that we're dealing with today. Like it's science today. But what woo-woo do you see in the science of today? Um, oh, the uh, biggest culprit? Yes. Uh, randomness. See, it's funny because I heard your conversation with uh, Sam Harris on mm-hmm. randomness, which I loved, by the way. You did a great job. Uh, I thought it was a great conversation. However, he was giving you, in my opinion, two contradictory ideas. He was telling you, look, the world is determined. But also there'll be random events. And I found that Well, be- he was actually talking about determinism versus free will. Right. Yeah. So the idea being that you don't necessarily have free will, that everything about your decisions and what you're going to mm. do is based on your life experiences, your genetics, all these variables that are essentially out of your control. So this idea of free will is an mm. illusion, which is a really complex conversation. And I think you could see it in both ways. I I think you do have a certain amount of control of your decisions. And I think you are also shaped very much so by your past and your genetics and your interpretations of those events. Um, What are those interpretations of those events, though? And why do you make those determinations? Who who's who's in your head pulling the gears? Like, what is, question? What are you? I'm a hard determinist. Like, I'm a very hard determinist. Like, I yeah. I'm, I'm like determinist extremist. Mm-hmm. So, but do you believe in free will? I also believe in free will, which yeah, is which me is too. which is tricky. 
yeah, which is tricky. But I think that's uh, it's true. Upon I think both further true. examination, I think that's there's there is something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that allows people to. I mean, what what takes a guy who's five hundred pounds and all of a sudden he goes on a keto diet and starts running and starts walking and then he he sends you a picture on Twitter. I lost one hundred seventy nine pounds in six months. You're like, holy shit. How the fuck did you do that? <laughs> like that guy has some fucking will, man. To but, say that that's his whole life, and his his life experiences and his genetics, it's like, yes, I could see what you're saying. I could see that he he had enough because of his life experiences, and that it led to him making this mm-hmm. change. But there's a tremendous amount of will involved in that, and mm-hmm. to deny that seems like you're denying the spirit of human beings. Well, let's look at it this way, okay? Real okay. quick, let's look at it, okay. Let's say I crumple up this piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to catapult it. Okay. And it landed there. Right. And now I'm going to reset the entire universe. I'm going to reset every molecule of air, every fiber in this paper. You're going to be in the exact same spot. The whole universe has been reset. And I fired it again. Is it going to land exactly where it landed the first time? Or is it going to land somewhere else? I've reset the universe. I, the earth was, the earth, every molecule of matter in the, every, every, Every particle of matter in the universe has been reset. With the same amount of force. Everything is identical. I would assume if the same amount of space and the same amount of air, you would land the same spot. Infinitely precisely? I don't know. Well, I've reset everything perfectly. If if infinitely precisely you throw it the exact exact same way and it lands in the exact same dirt with the exact same Mm -hmm, resistance. mm -hmm. It's the same thing. I would assume. It's okay. infinitely precisely going to land the same spot. If randomness is a force at work in nature, mm-hmm. why didn't it factor itself into our little experiment here? Because your little experiment's impossible. But that's irrelevant. It's a thought experiment. But it's not a thought it's not experiment because impo- you're impossible. recreating it's not the logically whole universe. Right, but it's not logically impossible. Right. It's, well, it's, in that case, though, with the variables that you presented, yes. Okay. But you, where's randomness? Where's this force? There's no randomness if you're recreating the entire Earth in a, in a very duplicatable way. That's not mm-hmm. randomness at all. What is randomness? That's Ran- the thing. There is no randomness. Right. Randomness is when a human being can no longer compute all the factors. And he, we use an expression called randomness, meaning, okay, I rolled this dice, it landed on, on seven randomly. Why? Because I couldn't compute all the mm-hmm. variables. So, okay, so, so randomness is kind of a, it's, a, it's an illusion that we, we project onto the world. So Laplace, one of the greatest uh, physicists in history, okay, uh, Simon Laplace, he says, look, look at a billiard ball table. Okay, if you tell me which way you're going to break the billiard balls, if you tell me what velocity and what angle you're going to hit the, the, the cue ball, mm-hmm. I could tell you where every single ball is going to be on the pool table. That's what Laplace says. Okay, he's a, he's a phenomenal thinker. And he says, why? Because I'm going to take that table, I'm going to turn it to a math. I'm going to take the weight of the ball, the friction of the table, the, the density of the bands, the, 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 the gravity of the, the earth. Excuse me. I'm going to take all those variables. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put them up on this board here. All I need to know is how hard you're going to hit the ball. And I'll tell you precisely where every ball is going to land. Now, somebody who doesn't know mathematics or geometry is going to look at that table when he sees the break. To him, it's going to seem random. But randomness is really a reflection of his ignorance. He's not able to compute all this information. That's why Laplace says, to God, the world is not random. To somebody who has information, the world is not random. That's why he says, it's very important, that's why, that's why we're so determinist, because we believe that what's happening right now is a byproduct of the past. The past caused this happening right now. The past was out of your control. If I reset the universe 
and let it play all over again. A- identical circumstance. You would drink that exact same amount of coffee you had today. You would have made the same. You would have married the same woman. You would have had the same kids. You would have had the same T-shirt on right now. You would have this, the mic at the same distance. Everything would be reset. So when we look at the world through the eyes of physics, they say the causal line is complete. The causal line is complete, meaning where is this space for randomness or free will? It, we, we don't factor it in. The only time we do factor it in is when we look at ourselves inwardly. Mm. But when we look at the world objectively as a third person, so th- there's two views. There's the internal view, first person experience. We don't believe, random, we don't believe in, in, in uh, determinism. We're, we have free will. That's the first person experience. Third person experience, I'm studying Joe. All I see in Joe is billiard balls. So when you have a thought, it's all billiard balls hitting one another. And if I had an infinitely precise calculator, according to Laplace, I could tell you where you're going to be five years from now, what you're going to be doing. Why? Because I'm seeing one billiard ball hit another. It's just take that pool table experiment and make it the greatest pool game in history. Mm. There are countless atoms. There are countless billiard balls striking into one another. Somebody can calculate the world of physics and tell you where your hand's gonna be. Laplace says, I'm gonna tell you where your hand's gonna be in five years from now. But you don't know my personal choices I'm gonna make. That's irrelevant. That's irre- He'll tell you that's irrelevant. Why? Because he sees the billiard balls moving inside your mind, so to speak. Mm. Now Leibniz reconciled the two. Because, see for instance, when, I, when I'm living in the first person, this is my intuition. I'm like, hey, I grabbed that cof- cup of coffee. I had this internal experience that's outside of physics. So Leibniz gives a great example. He says, look, if I was really, really tiny and I'd walk around your mind, I would see blood flow, I would see neurons firing, I would see all sorts of biological uh, interactions. But I wouldn't see anything of consciousness. I wouldn't see your thoughts, I wouldn't see you thinking about your wife, uh, hearing your child's voice, uh, thinking about what you want to have for dinner, I wouldn't see any of that. I would just see billiard balls hitting one another. However, now that I'm having this first person experience, there's something we call intuition, this first person experience itself. You're having this spiritual type of transcendent experience. What it's like to have a thought, what it's like to be me. So for instance, I see that cup of coffee. I desire the cup of coffee and I drink it. Science has, nothing, has no information about my conscious experience, my intuitive experience. It, it, science is not absolute. It cannot tell me everything about the universe. It can only tell me about the billiard balls. It can only go so far. At that point, it has to stop because it doesn't have, we don't, our senses cannot sense the conscious experience that we're having. The conscious experience is only known intuitively. So first person experience. So Leibniz says this, he says, look, you look at the world, when we study the world, we're all seeing billiard balls hitting one another. Nobody argues about that. However, our intuition is telling us that's all untrue. We have the chance, we have the ability to move our own hand, desire something, grab something, eat something, consume something, make a choice. And he says, how are the two, how could they coexist? Because remember, in, in reason, for me to accept something as logically true, I have to eliminate every other possibility. So he found one possibility, one possibility that till today it's, it's never been refuted. He says, he, he calls it the, the twin trains. So picture two trains, okay? They're going up and down, side by side, traveling at the same speed. They look like they're connected to one another, but they're not. They're just synchronized. Every time one goes left, the other one goes left. One goes up, one goes down. And so when, I, when Leibniz tells you, he says, look, when you reach for that cup of coffee, the universe had already decided millions of billions of years ago that that was going to happen. 
your intuitive sense just coincides with it perfectly. And he says, that's what he calls the twin trains theory, the, the correlation theory, that your desire to grab that cup of coffee doesn't affect your hand, does not move your hand. That would be impossible. That would be something non-physical moving something physical. So he says that they're just correlated perfectly. When you ask him, how do they correlate so perfectly? He says, well, God, it's like God took the world's, the greatest pool shot in history. This is Leibniz. This is, uh, he's, uh, he's the guy who invented uh, calculus, uh, the binary code, you know, like all our computers today work because of, of Leibniz. That, to me, is a hard sell. Yeah. So Most very, people can't wrap their mind around it. Yeah, it's yeah. a hard sell. And first of all, he comp a woman comp created the first computer code. Uh, he, he invented the binary code. Binary code. Binary code, mm -hmm. not computer code, but it's based on binary. Now, when he's saying, he's saying this, that your desire coincides with the universe having this that seems like a lot of woo that seems like Tell a, quite a bit of a stretch that, that's the interesting part tell me why well why would the universe have a plan for you and your movement? well he's saying god he's saying god okay. directly well so go ahead prove that okay that's a great that's a great argument that's a great objection why now, would you say this, that this, it would be god this, this argument wasn't to prove god this right. argument was to tell you that this is a possibility why you have free will is true, mm -hmm. and so is determinism. Yes. Because can you deny free will? Aren't you having a direct experience of free will? Well, the only denial of free will would be determinism. The only denial would be that your idea of free will is an illusion. It's re you are really shaped by the momentum of your past, your genetics, life experiences, all the variables and the way you've absorbed emotions and interactions with people, and mm. that these are flavored your very being to the point when when presented with an obstacle or an opportunity or a thing there is a predetermined solution in your mind for whatever the situation is that's determinism okay so let, let's uh, let's let's I back should say action rather than solution let's take a, a step back and look at what leibniz is trying to say okay he's trying to say look there's three ways of knowing something and yeah you have to understand this is a brilliant human being okay and oh, there's not many denying. many many men have have said the same thing throughout history mm -hmm. so, but let's let's just at least entertain him Okay. He says, look, you know something empirically through your senses, mm -hmm. okay? You touch fire, it's hot. Then you can know something deductively. One plus one equals two, via logic. Then you can know something intuitively, meaning direct first experience, okay? So, so, let, so let's, say, um, let's say you tell me, um, I don't know, um, I've had uh, coffee tastes great. You don't know that deductively or empirically. The sensation of coffee tasting great is known intuitively, direct, meaning there is no, um, there is no uh, interpreter. In philosophy, we have something called the egocentric predicament. So right now, you're experiencing this entire room within your consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. I might be outside of your ego, but I'm, I'm occurring right now in your consciousness. Do you, well, can you, can you see the difference? I'm perceiving you so, yeah. in my consciousness. Yes. Or with my consciousness, which is connected to my senses. Is there anything you can perceive outside of your consciousness? We, that's a weird say, way of saying something. It's impossible. Is there anything, but perceiving outside of my consciousness, meaning mm -hmm. not being not conscious, but yet still perceiving. No, when you perceive something, it has to be within your consciousness. Right, you have to, or with your consciousness. 
Right. It cannot be outside of your right. consciousness. So even if something touches your skin, you're consciously recognizing that it touches your skin. Um, the egocentric predicament is more about your whole universe is made up of your consciousness. You cannot sense anything or experience anything or get any information outside of your consciousness. Like right. Kant was very big on this. He's like, look, this, this is called idealism. Every, the whole world is happening on inside your head, right? right? Supposedly. Like, for instance, you see this cup of coffee. They're going to say, oh, the light clusters hit the, the cup of coffee. It goes in your eye. Your eye, your, your eye gives your brain a signal. Your, sig your brain interprets the signal and creates this universe around you. It creates this image. The theater of your mind, yeah? Mm -hmm. Can you experience anything outside the theater of your mind? Very difficult to argue that you could. It's impossible. Yeah. According to all the philosophers in history, we, we cannot. We cannot. This is called the egocentric predicament. But what about subconscious? That would be still happening inside your, your conscious mind. So subconscious is still somewhat conscious in some way. Yes, it would be happy. Whatever, whatever you would perceive would be happening in your conscious mind. It would just be outside of your mm. standard awareness. Now, the scary thing is, is that we, have, we make a lot of inferences. And that's where the woo-woo comes in. Everything is woo-woo. You, mm -hmm. think just, you think just everything outside of science is woo-woo. Science is just as woo-woo as everyone else. You keep saying that, but I okay, don't well, understand let, why let, you're saying that it. because you haven't made a good example. Okay, well, the only example that you said was that they changed the way they look at gravity when new information was presented. Right. That doesn't equal woo-woo. Gravity was woo-woo. It was a magical okay, force. My my you're talking theory. about gravity in terms of people that didn't, didn't have phones. They didn't so, have right. cars. They mm -hmm. didn't have paved roads. I mean, you're dealing with a very primitive notion of what gravity was. It was a very interesting idea that has since been proven to be true. False. Gravity, New Newtonian gravity? Okay. Has been proven to be false. But gravity is still real, right? Not, we're using the, the same word for a completely different idea. Okay. So Newton's gravity was magical. It was an appeal to magic. Okay. All, here, here it is. Here it is. Let me make gravity it gravity is different than Einstein's gravity and that Einstein's gravity is what's been proven, right? We know now that light does bend around the mass of the sun, which is one of the reasons why we have a hard time seeing asteroids that are coming from behind the sun because the mass of the sun actually bends space-time around it to the point where it distorts our view. It's our new narrative. It's not proven. You can never prove a scientific fact past the level of hypothesis. It's weird. I know it sounds strange, but what do you mean past the level of hypothesis? If you can prove it in studies and tests and show, you still don't buy it's, it. You have not eliminated every other possibility. Okay. So it's not the same as a logical fact. But how is that woo? This is this is understood in in, in like in the, the philosophy of science. It's quite it's comfortably accepted. It's not anti-science. Like I'm not trying to say anything. No, I know you're not. But I'm you, a lover but you're of saying science. that science has so much woo, and I'm not right. seeing the woo part. Okay. What I'm seeing is. The necessary testing and the idea of incorporating new data well, and, and changing beliefs and ideas. Again, this is, this is a, a quite a, it's a bit of a difficult thing to wrap your mind off in one day, but you have to think about it. And throughout time, you, you, it becomes clearer and clearer. Okay. When we observe the universe, all we see is pattern and regularities found in nature. That's it. We don't see actual physical laws. The physical laws are bookmarks inside our mind. We see the same pattern over and over again. And then we attribute a physical law. But that physical law doesn't exist out there. So here, here's a great example. Okay. Okay, let me give you a great example. Okay, let's say I'm about to flip a coin. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you're going to tell me it's probably going to land on heads or tails. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Do you know that logically, 
or is it based on your history with coins? I know it logically and based on my history of coins. Perfect. I'm arguing you don't know it logically. You only know it on your past history. Okay, so pay attention to this. This is, okay. this is a little bit weird. This is, we got we to gotta go slow. It's a bit very weird. Okay. It's very, uh, it goes against our instincts. Okay, erase all your history with coins. You've never okay. seen a coin before. Okay. And I flip it. Right. And now it turns into a butterfly. You've never seen a coin before. It doesn't surprise you. You're like, whoa, turn into a butterfly. Mm -hmm. Then I flip a coin a hundred times in front of you. A hundred times it turns into a butterfly. Now I'm going to flip the coin a hundred, the hundred and one time. You're going to be like, I bet you it turns into a butterfly. That's how we express science. We see the patterns and regularities. Then we, we predict them. Science, this is, this is a little bit, uh, this is a good way to put it. Science is the faith, it's faith that the future will behave like the past. Science is faith that the future will behave like the past. So now you've developed the faith that this coin will flip into a butterfly and now you can predict it. Wouldn't you say that science is the use of measurement to understand matter and things around us? I wouldn't say that it's using the past to predict the future. I would say that if you know that fire melts lead at a certain temperature and mm. this is provable, Mm -hmm. And then you can show this over and over again. Here's what we know about fire. It reaches a certain temperature. When lead reaches a certain temperature, it melts. It changes its form. Whereas if you want to do that same test to carbon-based steel, it requires far greater temperatures. And then we know that there's variables in matter. Okay. But this, is, this, is not, this is something that you can prove and show. There's no woo to that. Okay, water boils at how many degrees? I think it's 250, In Celsius, it's 100 degrees Celsius. I don't know about Fahrenheit. Oh, you Canadians, with your wacky metric system. <laughs> Is that a scientific fact? <laughs> Is it a scientific yes. fact that water boils at yes. a certain temperature? Yes. Actually, no. It's not? They can boil water now. They can water can resist boiling up to 200 degrees Celsius. If you put it in a certain atmospheric, atmospheric pressure, and mm. suspend it in a certain liquid. If you change the circumstance... Suspend water in liquid? They, they suspend it in a particular liquid that's, that's not okay. heated or cooled. All right. It's not, it's not supposed to... It doesn't affect the temperature of the water itself. And now water can boil at 200 degrees. Okay, so you're doing something different to water. That's the thing. You're it, taking it outside of the normal Earth environment. So the, the variables also include Earth environment. Agreed. But water doesn't inherently boil at 100 degrees. It's not a fact, but we believe it to be a scientific fact. We believe that water, if it gets to 100 degrees, it's boiling. It's going to behave this way. As a matter of fact, no, there are many other things. That, that, that fact has been debunked, and there's countless amount of facts. But wait a minute. Is that the fact's been debunked, or is that when you add in sufficient external variables, mm -hmm. then water takes longer to boil because of these variables playing into yes. the, the, the properties that we already observed with water? That's why whenever we have a scientific fact, there might be new information coming to, right. to, to change our view change our view of this fact. Right, now, but this it, is not necessarily new information. What this is is new additional... More precise, more precise information. But what you're talking about with water, you're talking about additional variables. Like, that's just mm -hmm. more science. That's not woo. Okay, well, here's some woo. Okay, because we, we talked about gravity was woo. Okay, randomness was woo. Okay, because we, we cannot find one instance of actual randomness. The causal line is complete, as Laplace would say. 
There's no randomness in the world. So the randomness idea is just our inability to calculate exactly. unbelievably difficult mm -hmm. variables. Exactly. But the, the, it's, it's a projection of your ignorance. Right. If you knew, you wouldn't be random. So for instance, um, I can't remember who coined the term, but they say, the man who says the tallest mountain I've ever seen is the tallest mountain. He's making himself the measure of truth. I measure truth. If you take that perspective, you're the center of truth. I'm truth. There's nothing outside of me that's true. Then you see randomness everywhere. However, if you believe in correspondence theory, that truth is independent of me and you, which I think most of us will agree, mm -hmm. then randomness doesn't exist in that context because randomness only depends on you. Mm -hmm. And when things are true outside of your beliefs. Right. Let's take another classic woo, woo term. Again, this is very advanced philosophy. I know it sounds crazy, okay? But this is, this is, this is what the greatest thinkers in history you know, report, okay? What, they, what they've written down. Okay. Okay, you see this, uh, you see a knife. Okay, I, let's look at Aristotle's theory of knives. Okay, he says, look, look at this knife. I show you a plastic knife. I show you a wood knife. I show you a metal knife. I show you five different knives. And you're like, they're all knives. All of them are knives. You point to them and say they're knives. Aristotle says, look, they all share in one something, let's call it the essence, that makes them all knives. Would you agree? The form. They all share, like, if I draw they, a knife on a paper, you'd be like, he just drew a knife. Okay. That knife on the paper shares something with the knife made of steel, the knife made of plastic, okay. the knife made of wood. The form. There's something about it. We call it the essence in philosophy. Okay. The form might be confused with what uh, Plato says. Plato had a whole thing about forms. But let's call it, for now, essence. Okay. If you change the essence, you change the thing. So if I take that piece of, if I take that plastic uh, knife and I melt it, you'll be like, it's not a knife anymore. Right. Why? What did I do? You change that thing about it, that essence, right? Now, that essence, does it exist out there in the world or is it only in your head? You made it up. Well, by calling it essence, you're confusing me. So I would okay. call it the form. Okay, the, the form, form of it, 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 it exists in culture. It exists in our understanding of these objects and right. their useful shapes. It's, you, it's your, your idea of, of knife conforms yeah, to that well, knife out there. Where's that knife? Oh, here. That's a great, yeah, bring it out. You can see it. Great. That's obviously a knife. Yes. Right? You recognize it. Yes. I recognize it. That's a knife. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like my model of knife. That's a knife. Yeah. My model of knife, that fits my model yeah, of knife. Mine as Beautiful. Well. But there's some weird looking knives out there too. Sure. And there might be a knife where we don't agree. That's a knife. You think it's a knife? I don't agree. That's. I think that's a sword. I reached right. a level of sword. Right. Yeah. Right? Like a we Bowie might. Knife. We might have a different. That, that's. Yeah. That's great evidence yeah. that it's something in our minds. Mm -hmm. It's not actually objective. Right. 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 They get to the certain length. It's and you're subjective. Like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. It's subjective. Right? right. Okay. Let's look at matter now. Matter okay. is an inference of the mind, just like the the knife is an inference of the mind. In so, terms of so subatomic look, particles and atoms and. Watch this. You see this cup. Mm-hmm. You see this bottle? Yes. You see this clock? Yes. You made an inference. They all share one thing. What do they share? All of them share one thing. What is that thing they share? They share this thing called matter. Okay. But that's, that was an inference, just like we inferred the essence of a knife. Matter has never been observed in nature. Matter is a byproduct of our mind. So when you see a tree, mm. you're not seeing matter. There's no matter. There's only, not that I, I'm inferring matter. I'm observing an image. Right. But I'm inferring the matter. The matter so, is, an, is a mental construct. Is it a mental construct or is it our inability to see things smaller than what is necessary for our survival? Like we can't see atoms. We can't see mm -hmm. subatomic particles. We can't see them with the naked eye. But we understand through science that they exist. 
how do you understand that they exist? Are you saying that matter exists out there independently of your mind? Is matter objective or is it dependent on your mind to exist? It's not dependent on your mind to exist. It's dependent upon your mind to observe. You're, you need your mind to be able to observe matter. Okay, so matter... But if you didn't exist, do you think this table would exist? That I don't know. Right. But what would you guess? I would guess that all I know, if I'm going to use Occam's razor, you know, mm -hmm. if you've heard of Occam, if I'm going to go to the extreme with Occam's razor, I'm just going to believe what I observe okay. and kill all the woo-woo, kill well, you, it all. You have had loved one die, right? Yeah. Everyone has, right? Um, do you assume that when they die, the universe is still the universe? What do you mean, still the universe? It's like the world is the way they are. I mean, the, the way it is, there's trees and grass and dirt, and this person dies. Mm-hmm. The trees and grass and dirt, they don't change. They're still the same thing. What do you mean? The, the nature of the tree would change? No. I'm saying if you love someone mm -hmm. and you know this person and mm -hmm. they are no longer with us, mm -hmm. all the things around you, like this coffee mm -hmm. cup and mm -hmm. this knife, they, they remain the same. Mm -hmm. They don't change. No, they don't change. Why would you assume that it would be any different for yourself? If you weren't here, mm -hmm. why would you think that this table would not exist that's or a, the microphone would not that's exist? A great, that's a great argument. I'm not saying that it wouldn't. That's, this is what we call hard objectivity. Something that's hard objectivity exists without any human mind in existence. If all human minds were dead, whatever exists still is what we would call philosophers called hard objectivity. Mm -hmm. Now we have objectivity. So for instance, let's look at uh, George Berkeley's example because that's such a great question. Look at a triangle, okay? Okay. Picture a blue triangle. Okay. Picture a green one. Picture okay. a black one. Picture a white one. Can you picture one with no subjective elements? Meaning, because color is subjective, right? Color is a construct of the mind. So if I was colorblind, this shirt would be a different color to me than it is to you. Right. However, there would still be one shirt. It would right. be objective to a certain degree. Okay. So a triangle has three, three sides, three corners. It adds up to 180 degrees. We all agree. It, whether you're colorblind, it doesn't matter. Right. There's no subjective element to how many points does it have. Nobody's going to come in and say, to me, triangles have three, four sides. Right. You'd be like, that's not a triangle. Mm -hmm. There's not three angles to that. Right. You've, not, you've gone past a little cool understanding. Okay, so can you, George Berkeley says, can you picture a triangle without any subjective element, without any color? Let's call it color to make it really simple, really, really obvious. Can you picture a triangle without any color? You would have to have it in contrast to something so that you could see it. Like if you had, a, a, say if you had a purple curtain, like what we have behind us, mm -hmm. and out of that purple curtain, we cut a triangle. Mm -hmm. Even if there was no color, mm -hmm. even if it was just clear, you would be able to see, you'd be able to differentiate between that shape. But you needed that purple uh, curtain. To differentiate. Right. So we yes. cannot have it without subjective element. This was Berkeley's point. Okay. Exactly what you said. I see what you're saying. Beautiful. Every objective thing we've observed in the universe has a, is made up of subjective elements. Even when you draw the number one on a blackboard, it has to be a color. It has to be something. Okay. There has to be a contrast, like you said. Okay. It's beautiful. You said it beautifully. All our objective elements are mental constructs. Three sides. The idea of side is a mental construct. The idea of a point is a mental construct. The idea of 180 degrees is mathematical. It's happening in your mind somewhere. Right, it's not out it's there being provable. observed. You can draw it, and I can see it, and I can repeat it, and you can teach it to me, and I can teach it to someone else. Like these are, they may be mental constructs, but yes. they're provable mental constructs that are repeatable. 
So there, we, we think of agreement. them as a real thing. We're in agreement that mathematic is a mental construct and it's true. It's defini- by definition true. So One it's pl- both, a mental construct and true. Yes, but it's not outside, out there in the world. It's within. But if you make a triangle on the ground, mm. it's in the world. The numbers are in your head and the subjective element is in the world. There's a two-way streak. The subjective element is in the world, but it's a triangle. So, so yes. how's it in your head? Because you, when you look at a triangle, mm-hmm. the subjective elements, when you observe them in your mind, your mind points out different objective elements of that triangle. But, but it's dependent on your mind. By that argument, the entire universe is dependent on your mind. Absolutely. No doubt about it. If we're going to use Occam's razor. Yes. But not everyday language. We're using right. Occam's razor. Let's take away everything we're not sure of. Everything mm-hmm. that has a doubt. Get rid of it. Okay. Get rid of everything with a sliver of doubt. Like, you ever heard of well, Rene, the problem Rene, Rene is Descartes? matter itself as a sliver of doubt. Absolutely. Well, when you have subatomic particles that, you know, they exist in two different states simultaneously. They're both spinning and still. They're in super states. Berkeley would tell you those are images of subatomic particles. They're not mm. sub- subatomic particles independent of your mind. Well, I had a conversation with Sean Carroll about it, who's a mm. physicist, and he mm. made it Familiar. even more muddy to me. Mm. I, thought I, I thought it was crazy before I talked to him, and then when I talked to him, he he's was, brilliant. He's brilliant. He's essentially saying that subatomic particles don't blink in and out of existence it's just we it's the way we're looking at them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that they they exist in this just bizarre state but they mm-hmm. exist in this state in a way that it's very difficult for us to use normal language to sort of explain exactly that's that's the true issue but you know what uh, i might have fucked he's probably listening to this <laughs> he's like you fucking dummy you, you know ruined what i said again <laughs> You know what? It was, what a great what, one great conversation. I heard a conversation between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Oh, that conversation about truth. I loved it. Oh, that drove me crazy. I, I think we could do better, though. Yes, Let's, I think they could have done better too. They, they needed they a moderator. Have. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think they, get, they need to get to mud. know each other personally first. Yes, they never met, by the way. Right. That's it's yeah. that's fireworks, right? Mm-hmm. That was such a great conversation. But here's my question: What's the difference between knowledge and belief? Because a lot of what we said is kind of muddy. Okay, let's make it super. Let's make let's make the waters crystal clear as much as possible. Okay. What is the difference between knowledge and belief? Well, the belief that the gremlins are pulling down on people, which is why we have gravity, that would be a belief. No, they're both beliefs. Well, that gravity is not knowledge; it's belief. Okay, but we're talking about gremlins. Right. I was going to say that's <laughs> knowledge, or that's that's a belief. Belief. Knowledge is if I throw water on you, you get wet. Hmm. I would say that's belief. It's a belief. Yes. So maybe one day I throw water on you and you True. you show me that you're I Jesus oh, yeah. and the well, water just goes right through you and it doesn't The exist. reason why you believe water will make me wet is because it happened in the past. Okay. And you think that the future is going to behave like the past. Just like Aristotle saw the sun go around the earth and he thought that this is going to happen every well, day. Well, he didn't understand. I understand. It's optical illusion. Let me right. give you, let me give you, I understand let me what give you water a is though. It's H2O. Okay. I throw it at you, you get wet. All flamingos are pink. They're not. They're not. We didn't know that all the time, did we? <laughs> then we went to Australia. Don't they don't know, have the same food source. They don't right. have the same food source. They're black here. They're white here. Yeah. They have a different food source. Flamingos are not inherently pink. 
is the, the scientific, shrimp they eat. A scientific fact can always be overturned. This, oh, had that never look wet. at this. You threw water and didn't get wet. <laughs> yeah, but this is not. That's just, just a, because it's a, it's yes. a certain coating. Right. I got you. But I, if he's got that over his body, he's not going to yeah. be able to breathe. Okay, how about this? You've never <laughs> seen fire before. You've never seen fire. Okay. You've been being, you've been being warmed by electric blankets your entire life. Okay. Then you see a flame. And you don't know, can you know that that flame is going to burn you if you touch it logically? Or is it only via experience through history? Developing a history, a relationship with fire. It burns you once. It burns you twice. You're like, hey, well, I think the future is going to behave like the past. So I'm not going to touch that fire again. people who know that fire burns you and they've never been burned by fire because they went to school. And they learn from people who explain the properties right. of fire, what right. it is, how it works, what temperature it operates on, how right. it's different depending upon the color of it mm -hmm. or what's burning. Bor borrowed history. Borrowed history. It's Bor still history. Borrowed history? How so? You learn from my mistakes of touching fire. Okay. But it's still known via experience, via history. Well, it's known via science if you explain exactly what the elements of the fire are and mm -hmm. how it works and what it burns at and what temperature specific things need to burn at. Mm -hmm. You don't have to get burned to know that it'll burn you. No. No, but that's how we discovered fire burns, by testing it. Not, right. not via logical deduction. Okay, I see what you're saying. It's only history. Science is patterns and regularities found in nature. We observe nature. We see these patterns and regularities. Right. We have no idea what's causing them. Well, wasn't that Descartes' original idea about science in the first place was using measurement to sort of understand nature? Well... Was that one of his original concepts no, of his establishing science in the first place? No, his original concept was, look, science is doubtable. He said that, science is doubtable, no doubt. It's called Cartesian doubt, an extreme level of doubt. He says, those are all beliefs. I don't have any knowledge. What do I, what do I know? Because knowledge means zero chance of being wrong. Okay. Zero chance of being wrong. Give me one scientific fact you truly trust 100%. Okay. If I take a match and mm -hmm. I take a yellow piece of paper from this particular notebook, I yeah. will light that motherfucker on fire <laughs> with that match. That's a fact. Okay. That's a scientific fact? Is it? No. It's a scientific fact, but it's not higher than hypothesis. It's just a hypothesis you have. Why? Because every time you've seen a fire touch a piece of paper, mm -hmm. it burned it. So you're relying on your historical experiences. Okay. So it's wait, not you're, you're essentially saying there's deduct. no scientific fact possible. Only to the level of hypothesis. We can, this is not me talking. This is Thomas right. Kuhn. I understand what he's saying. saying look, he's saying, look, we have two phases in science. Standard science and then a scientific revolution. What's standard science? Well, whatever the, the flavor of the day is, let's say today it's, let's say today it's evolution. And then he says, look, every, every piece of information we receive, we interpret it through that lens. He called it a paradigm. We look at the, the information through the lens of evolution. So it makes mm -hmm. sense. It fits right here in our story of evolution. Right. And then he says, look, a small amount of uh, contradictory information is going to pool slowly. It's inevitable, he says. And then this, we're going to ignore it. We're going to sweep it under the rug. Everything doesn't make sense. We're going to sweep it under the rug. And then one day, that level of information, that, that, that amount of information that doesn't fit in any way with our theory, our current theory, is going to pool and pool and pool and pool until one guy comes around and says, no, we had it backwards or we had it wrong. It's this. And now all this new information fits in the new theory. All the old stuff fits and all the new stuff fits. 
And that's called a scientific revolution. And he says science is always going through a normal phase and then a revolution phase. And man is becoming more and more precise, but we'll never reach the level of past hypothesis. Why? Because science is based on our faith that the past, excuse me, that the future will behave like the past. We only know things via experience, via our history. So when I flip that coin, you have no idea what's going to happen until I flip many coins in front of you. Or I give you my, if you trust me and I tell you what, listen, I did this experiment, here are my results, and you trust me, you just take it for granted. You, you take it on way of authority. I agree with everything you said. I still don't see where you're saying science has so much woo. Okay. Or science has Beautiful. as much woo Beautiful. as healers or crystal well, suckers or. Listen, I don't believe in crystals in any of that. I, I know you don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I just. I, I have a higher standard of skepticism. I'm missing the woo, though. Okay. The woo is when we project physical laws combustion, electricity, gravity. These are all appeal to magic. Can you demonstrate these, these physical laws? Or are they byproducts? Are they, are they inferences you made in your mind because you've seen a certain pattern over and over again? That law doesn't exist out there in the universe. It's only a bookmark. It's only a name we have for a pattern we've observed in nature. It's pretty heavy stuff, I know. It's only a name for a pattern exactly. that we've observed that exists in nature. Exactly. So that means you can't label anything ever. Because the, everything is just a pattern that we've observed in nature. Exactly. Everything, everything is a pattern. So there's no things. There's no logic behind there's it. Nothing there's is no real. logic. We give an explanation. We give a narrative to it. Okay. But that narrative is just our paradigm. Kamis uh, Kuhn would say, that's the shades you're wearing. Okay. That's, you, you can't said it beautifully. He said, look, you have pink tinted glasses. You can have blue tinted glasses. But whatever glasses you're wearing, that's the song and dance. That's the, that's, the, that's the story you tell yourself of why those things are happening the way they're happening. Okay. The truth of the matter is all we're seeing is one pattern happening over and over again. So what this is essentially is an intellectual exercise. But the reality of our ability to come up, well, not ours, obviously, but super smart people, come up with the very technology that we're using right now to broadcast this podcast means that they have figured things out that they're provable and that you can use science to determine what frequency things need to be, how much electricity you need, what kind of components can do, you mm -hmm, know, take mm -hmm. the image and project it through the power lines and through the, the internet cables and all the different things that we need to be in place to provide the electricity, to provide the internet mm -hmm. connection. That's all science. So this is it's all predictive. Science but, is predictive. Right. But this is all, these are all things that are not just observable, but they're repeatable. Right. The pattern. So where's the woo? Here, here's, here's where the woo is. Okay. Our explanation for why it happens, the laws of nature are woo. It's not woo. It's it is. Our, our words that we use to describe repeatable things. Okay. Which, which, which law of, which force of, of, of nature are you referring to? Let's pick one. Okay, randomness. Can you show? I don't think that's okay. a force of nature. Okay, so I agree with you that randomness, the idea of randomness. Okay, pick one. Because they use it. They say it's, it's evolution, uh, uh, a natural section via uh, random selection. Temperature. Temperature. Okay. Okay. What causes temperature? I observe temperature like you. I mm -hmm. believe temperature exists. What causes temperature? We don't know. 
That's true. And we don't know. We, you and I don't know. And we have to talk scientists. to some. They don't have any idea what causes. They can only tell me about friction, the patterns and regularities. That's that, it. That friction causes certain things. That the magnetic pull of the sun on the Earth causes certain temperature shifts, and th these are recognizable and repeatable. And they understand how to measure them. Mm -hmm. These are all just patterns and regularities found in nature. Right. And they're giving them names and explanations. I see what you're saying. These names I... and explanations can be debunked later on. I put them in the maybe pile, plausible pile. But this is, this is listen, I know it's frustrating, but the philosophy of science, this is it. The, the cause and effect, we do not observe cause and effect. We do not observe one thing causing another. Mm. We just see A and then we see B. It's really, it's really, it's a bit difficult, but imagine this. Ugh, we I see should. A and we see B. We don't we see don't cause We don't see the causal effect. connection. Because if we did see the causal connection, you would know what happens when I flip that coin. You could have predicted it. You well, could predict what's going to happen when I touch fire. I would have to know exactly how much force you're exerting on your thumb to flip that coin. I would have to know what altitude we're at to understand mm -hmm. what the atmosphere that this coin is going through. Mm -hmm. I would have to know the weight of the coin. I would have to know the, the position of your thumb on the thing. Okay. It's like what you said about the billiard balls. Mm -hmm. that, that is true, that if you could calculate the exact amount of friction on the cloth and the table, the amount of mm -hmm. polish that are on the balls, mm -hmm. the amount of force, you'd have to have all the balls in exactly mm -hmm. the same spot. Mm -hmm. But this is this is not possible today. Today, mm. if you set up a table and you set up, let's say, just say nine balls, and you told me you were going to know where every ball was to the millimeter, I would say, I will bet you a million dollars you're wrong. And I would be right every time. You're never going to get it. Why? Because you don't have the ability to calculate all those variables. But it's theoretically possible. And it's also the physical the physical change of the amount of force that you drive when you break those mm -hmm. balls varies. And if mm -hmm. it varies even slightly, mm -hmm. it's going to change the way. So a person just mm -hmm. doing it with their body mm -hmm. is not capable of that kind of precision. If we got a robot to break. Even if you got a robot to break, you would have to have those balls in exactly the same mm -hmm. spot. And they don't usually sit that way because the cloth has fiber in it and it's wool. It's a worsted wool. And that worsted wool moves and shifts and bends and it flattens out in some spaces and other mm -hmm. spaces it gets dirt and debris mm -hmm. and chalk. Understood. There's too many variables. So because we cannot compute all the variables, I'm with you. We can't mm -hmm. maybe, right. we, we can create it to, with a slight margin of error. Right. Well, there'll still be a margin of error. That's why Laplace said, I'd need a divine calculator. Yeah, he says, because I, I would have epic. to even round off the numbers. So I'll mm -hmm. be slightly wrong. Right. But the argument is that if we had all the variables, and that's a big if, it's logically possible. It's logically uh, coherent with the reality that we see. Yes. Randomness is by the wayside. It's a figment of our imagination. We project it when we cannot compute. But if we could, this is... Uh, objective outside of us. Right. The, the truth is outside of us. It's not dependent on me and you, how we see the world. So randomness is based essentially on our inability to calculate variables. It's mm -hmm. not on, the, on an actual law itself. Yes. Yeah, that so makes when sense. So when we say that's random, it's woo-woo. Right. It is, in the strictest way of the, of the word. Now, every logical law, now this, this, this is what hurts people, but I love science. Look at me, I'm a, I'm a lover of science. No, I'm, I, I'm, I believe I'm you I'm, do. A, I'm a science addict. Okay, I read all the books. I, I, I'm fascinated by science. Let's say I take object X. And I throw it at that. I throw it at a window. What's mm -hmm. going to happen? I don't know. You don't know. I have any experience with object uh, object right. X. I don't know what object X why is. Why can't you? Why can't you deduce it? Why I, can't you deduce what's going to happen? Well, if I had more information, uh, you need experience. You need a history with object X. You need to get to know object X. Interact. Mm -hmm. You cannot deduce it. 
well, you would write down all these different variables. Mm -hmm. You would find out what people have learned from the past about mm -hmm. these variables, and that mm -hmm. would be science. Exactly. Science is the history of patterns and regularities. Mm -hmm. It is not deduction. It is not logic. It's a type of logic. We call it inductive logic. This logic is the faith that the past, that the future, assume the future, will behave like the past. Mm -hmm. So the patterns and regularities we see in nature, we say, look, if these happen often enough, we can recreate these circumstances often enough, we predict it'll happen in the future. Right. We have a faith that it'll happen again in the future. There is no logical reason why it does. There is no, not one single logical reason why we don't fall off, the, fall, off, fall off the face of the earth. Every explanation we give ourselves is just a narrative. It is always subject to reinterpretation. However, with the change in variables, like we're, we're a even, shifting of the Earth's magnetic poles or... I gave you a ridiculous narrative, mm -hmm. the gremlin one. Right. Just to show you, look, I know you don't believe in mine. I don't believe in mine either. Right. But I'm doing the same thing Isaac did. And I'm going to correlate my gremlin's theory as far as he can correlate his gravity theory. He used the word gravity. He made it, he made it sound better. He made it sound less ridiculous. But the truth of the matter is he's throwing his hands up in the air saying, look, I don't know. Let's just call it gravity. Mm. Let's, this is a way to think about it. Now, his contemporaries laughed at him. They said it's an appeal to magic. And then when people started wearing those shades, those paradigms, they're like, hey, it makes sense. If you, if, you believe, if, you, if you just believe in gravity for a second, it explains all this ballet of, of celestial bodies mm. and how they move. But really what he discovered was a pattern. And he gave that pattern a name. But does that force exist out there? Well, not according to Einstein. He came up with a different narrative that fits the, the evidence even better than, than Isaac Newton did. But it's still a narrative. It, it hasn't removed all the other possibilities. For something to be true, without a doubt, for it to be knowledge, not belief, there has to be zero doubt, meaning no other possibility whatsoever. That's knowledge. So, my, so can you know something that's untrue? You cannot know something that's untrue. You can believe something that's untrue. Knowledge means that this is known, there is no possibility of doubt. That's why Descartes was such an important philosopher, because he gave us one thing that we know, the cogito. Have you heard of the cogito? I don't remember what it is. I think, therefore, I am. Oh, okay. That's what so it is. So what is it that we know for sure? Because, uh, you know, it's funny. There's two great philosophers that I've read that they went through a crisis in their life. One of them was Imam Ghazali, a great Arabic philosopher, and one of them was René Descartes. And both their writings are, are, are very, like, they're, it's amazing. Why? Because they go through this crisis. They go through, what do I actually know? What's not, because they, they came to this exact same conclusion that, hey, it's all song and it's all this explanation. It's not proof. It's all a narrative. It's all a point of view. Science keeps getting refined and changed. With we, more information. What we believed yesterday gets taken out from underneath us. Mm -hmm. Today's paradigm is going to be shifted again, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. What can I grab and be like, this is true. Nobody can ever take this from me. That's going to be called knowledge. So it all comes down, like at the end, at the end of the long journey of Cartesian doubt, it, it, was, it was so extreme, the, the, the philosophers gave it a new name. They call it Cartesian doubt. They call it modern philosophy. So philosophy is thousands of years old. Descartes comes, writes a book. He wrote six chapters in six days. And he was like, what do I actually know 100% without a doubt? Nobody could ever question me. And he said, look, I believe in the cogito. What's the cogito? I think, therefore, I am. So he goes through a long process. You know, if we have the time, we'll, we'll go through a, a little nutshell of it. So he says, look, he says, look, when I, when I put a straw in a glass of water, my eyes tell me that the straw is bent. Right? Because the reflection of the water is, is, is bent. The, light, the reflection of the light off the water is, 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 is bent. Yeah. He says, look, my eyes lie to me. Aristotle thought the sun goes around the earth. His eyes lie to him. Our senses lie. 
And he talks about if I put my hand in cold water, then I put it in tepid water, it'll seem warm to me. But that's just my bias, my inability to tell you what my, my, my instruments are not accurate enough. So he said, okay, let's, let's put uh, um, empiricism or senses by the wayside. It cannot give us truth. It cannot give us truth. He says, what about deduction? What about math? Analytical knowledge. One plus one equals two. Believe it or not, philosophers also disagree with a lot of mathematical uh, beliefs. So for instance, here's a, here's a big critique of math, okay? One plus one equals two. We all believe it. But the critique is that one plus one is another way of saying two. There's no actual information you ever gave me. Mathematics is just one way to sum up a lot of information. It helps me give you an epiphany. It, makes, it, makes me, it helps me make you understand what's happening on the billiard ball table. Right. But it so give by you calling one plus one two... You're not changing the objects themselves. It's no, always exactly. been two things. It's always been two. Yeah. It's a tautology. You're just explaining to me something that's out there already existing. So if I tell you a triangle has three points, well, when I said the word triangle, I already told you it has three points, but right. maybe you didn't pick that up. Maybe I had to point it out to you. So um, Bertrand Russell said it beautifully. He said, look, at, at first in his career, Bertrand Russell is a very, very uh, he's a great thinker. He said, look, mathematics is the thing we're most sure of. By the end of his career, he was like, guys, I'm not even sure about math anymore. Why? He's like, I think math is just another way of saying a four-legged animal has, is an animal. But you said that when you said it's four-legged animal. And you just repeated yourself by saying it's an animal. If I say, there's my wife, I married her. When I said my wife, I told you I married her. That's what math is doing. Math is giving you the information again in a simpler form that you can mm. understand. And you think, oh, I've deduced this information. No, actually, the information was there in the question. Right. Some, some philosophers disagreed with this. They said, no, math brings you, like Kant, Kant said, no, math tells you something. Okay, let's put that on the wayside. Here's another critique, one I personally could never get around. They say, look, he says, look, all the greatest thinkers in history, this is actually an Ibn Taymiyyah critique of, of uh, logic. He says, look, all the greatest thinkers in history all disagree, like Plato and Aristotle. You know, Plato tutored Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Two of the greatest thinkers in ancient history. They don't agree with one another. They, they both think they both say you're wrong and the other guy says I'm wrong okay fast forward every generation their greatest thinkers disagreed Leibniz didn't agree with Voltaire today Sam Harris and and Jordan Peterson two okay maybe they're not the top top intellectuals of our world of our uh, on earth today but they're they're among they're among the elite they don't agree on what is true when you ask them what's truth you guys are talking about truth all day long can you define it for us we don't agree so if logic is something that tells us about the world, if it is, let's say we grant that. Descartes saying, look, we can't use it. We don't, nobody's good enough to use it and get to a conclusion that everybody agrees upon. So he's saying, look, even that doesn't help me. So he came up to the cogito. He says, look, he doubted everything. Like he even went to the point where he said, what if I'm dreaming? What if there's a evil demon out there always tricking me. Like he went really out there. Like well, he, that's one of the reasons why simulation theory is terrible. Yeah. Like people yeah. really do, like serious people, mm -hmm. consider the potential that not only is it possible that we are in a simulation, but that there are many, many simulations inside of simulations. Mm -hmm. Because we couldn't, that's what the egocentric predicament we were talking about earlier is. You cannot experience anything outside of your consciousness. Right. So you could be plugged into a machine right now. And this is just a big old dream. Could be. And that's why Descartes wanted to know, 
what would be true even if I was in a simulator? And that's I think, therefore I am. Therefore I am. Because for me to have thoughts, I'd have to exist. Mm. If you doubt the cogito, you've proved the cogito. Because to object to it, you first have to have existence. Right. Right. He refined it. I think, I think thinkers refined it later on and before him also. Many thinkers came to this conclusion. He just did it really famously. He did, well, it, really, he did it in one sentence too. He did it in one sentence. He summed yeah. it up. That's why if you, you know, I've heard of Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. If you use Occam's razor to an extreme, if you go, if you go to a, an, an extreme degree, if you, everything with a doubt, you chop it. Everything that might be imaginary, inferred, logical, empirical, you chop it. What happens? You have a transcendent experience. You become, you, if you take off all your paradigms, and this takes a very brave human being to do, to remove everything that anybody's ever told you and have the experience of the one thing. What you would know, what you would come to, what, what mystics, that's why I believe that there's, there's a place where you can get where religion is true and science is faith. And I know it sounds crazy, but there is a point, and I believe in science, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I can't praise science enough, but there is a, a transcendent experience a human has, and that transcendent experience is consciousness itself, not the content of consciousness. This is where people make a mistake. Consciousness itself, reality, your world is nested in consciousness. People think consciousness is within my brain. It's the opposite. Your brain, your body, your, your, yourself is in consciousness. And when we, when we get to this point, then all our paradoxes disappear. There's no more paradoxes, logical paradoxes. Maybe if we have time, we can talk about logical paradoxes. They never end. But when we, we understand that our world is nested in consciousness, there's nothing happening in the world around you that's outside of your consciousness. It's only outside of your ego. The thing you, you associate with Joe Rogan is also happening inside your consciousness. Your brain is within consciousness. No brain has ever been observed outside of consciousness. See, in, in materialism, we have this, they have this philosophy called epiphenomenalism, that the consciousness is a byproduct of this physical brain. We have this physical brain, and your consciousness is like a byproduct, it's like a smoke. Now we ask them, how do you know about this physical brain? Oh, we know it because of our consciousness. So if your consciousness is fake, unreal, then so is your brain. Your brains, the, the reason why we all know about brains is because of consciousness. Consciousness tells us about brains. So brains are dependent on consciousness, not consciousness dependent on the brain. So I know this is a bit of a tricky thing, but this is what idealism is all about. There is no physical object outside of consciousness. It's all mental construct. This is a... This is a, we, this is a we started this podcast talking about MMA <laughs> and we ended on a mindfuck. Yeah, seriously. This is a serious mindfuck. The egocentric predicament. Not, in, not an easy one. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating yet impractical exercise because mm. you, will, you will do it to the end of time. You'll be sitting here debating and yeah. discussing and dissecting the very but you know that's also how you gain a greater and deeper understanding of all the mm. things you have no idea what the fuck they are exactly <laughs> but it's it's still it's still amazing to me like how much is to be explored about what is real around us like the world mm. the reality of the world around us is it's 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 greater than any mystery in existence that's why for me i can't read fiction I only study science, history, philosophy. That's the only mm. thing. Science, history, philosophy, religion. Because it's weird enough. No, because it, it, they're all trying to tell me, they're all trying to explain the world around us. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, that's such a hard thing to do, to sum up. What's, what's reality? Hey, all these philosophies and theories are trying to sum it up. This is reality. And to cross-examine them, for me, is far more entertaining than watching a movie or hearing a fictional story. Mm. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it's definitely fascinating and entertaining. And uh, I, I like fictional stories, too, though. I like, I like observing creativity because I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm fascinated by what people are able to create out of their own mind. Mm. Something like we were talking yesterday about Stephen King, about how amazing it is that this guy just keeps continuing to create these bizarre stories and that someone can do that, that your consciousness and by putting so much emphasis on creativity and your ability to just write down things that never really happened and paint a picture inside someone's mind. Now, let me ask you this. If, if he is, if determinism is true, who wrote those stories? Like when you write a- His uh, past? When you, write a, when you write a story on a computer, did the computer write the story? No, you wrote the story, right? right? But if determinism is true, Stephen is just a computer and his buttons are being pushed by past events. Yeah. So that's why like one student asked me, hey, you should read a book by Sam Harris on determinism. I'm like, well, can you ask Sam who wrote the book? You know, <laughs> who wrote the book on determinism? He's going to say, well, he did. No, he can't write anything. He's determined. So right. th- these are old philosophical questions that mm. need to be explored. But they're, like you say, uh, mind-bending, you know? Very mind-bending. For us, I'm glad we finally did this, man. <laughs> it seems too. like we could do about 100 of these. Sure. Let's do it again, man. Yes, How sir. often are you in town? Uh, rarely. But next time I'm in Vegas for UFC or something, I might take a trip over Let's here. Let's do it. Let's yeah, do brother. it. Thank awesome. you, sir. I really, really appreciate it, man. It was great. Awesome. For us, a hobby, ladies and gentlemen. Awesome. Great, man. <laughs>